All right, welcome to the AP Podcast. Um, this is Mike Shea. I am here with somebody we've been uh, I've been wanting to sit down with for a while, actually, and he and I have talked about it, and uh, um, the gods have made it happen, and uh, now we are here together. I'm, I'm here with Andy Biersack, uh, who's the obviously the lead singer, um, but he's also the founder and um, the inspiration, the soul of Black Veil Brides. And uh, Andy's got an amazing story, and uh, and he's also an incredible talent, and he's he's also a very legit dude. And I'm really happy you're here today. Oh, thanks, Mike. I'm and glad to be here, fellow so. Ohioans. Kind of way. I don't know. Are you actually Cincinnati or more Kentucky side? Well, you know, I I was born in Cincinnati. I spent most of my adolescence in Cincinnati. It wasn't until I got to be in bands that I really started to associate more with Kentucky because there were no. In Cincinnati, there were no venues except for Bogarts, which was unattainable when you're young. So all the clubs were in Kentucky. And from like, I would say 14 until I moved out, I was always in Kentucky. I I slept over there constantly, all my friends' houses. I wound up spending more time in Kentucky. So I started to kind of associate that way. But if I'm honest, I'm I'm a Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio guy. I I think your Wikipedia page says says you were born in Milwaukee. Which is untrue. And I do not know why it says that. However, I make the joke every time we play in Milwaukee that I'm in my hometown show. So I wear wear a Brewer's jersey and... Uh, and for whatever reason, and people have changed it and then someone keeps changing it back. But Wikipedia is just a mess of misinformation, that whole thing. It is a mess of in- misinformation. But you know what? Everybody feels like they have a piece of you now. Yeah, there you go. You know, in, in Cleveland, the river, Cuyahoga River, divides the city. And and the people on the west side of town are, uh, act and think differently than the people on the east side of town. And, and I've heard that over the years that the music scenes... Uh, are divided from Cincinnati and to and to Lexington and Covington and all that stuff. It's divided by that Ohio River. Mm-hmm. And have you noticed that? Like when you were starting well, out, you have like this rivalry going on. Like, oh, you're from the Ohio side. You're. It's not even the. It's the west side of Cincinnati, and then Kentucky is one thing. The the river doesn't necessarily divide it. The east side of Cincinnati is where the affluent, rich sort of communities are, where there's an IKEA, like the things that <laughs> the things that where I'm from seem insane. That you know are kind of commonplace. Um, it's, it's a more, it's where the girls that I wanted to date were from because they were, they were better looking and they were more, more well kept and like, you know, and they, they had nice cars and that kind of thing. Uh, so th- yeah, the, the East side of Cincinnati is where, you know, and I didn't, that's actually where my dad grew up on the East side of Cincinnati before it became the East side of Cincinnati. And then he met my mom and fell in love with the West side because the West side's a little grittier. That's where my mom was from. And, um, there's a lot more history on the West side. People are, you know, there's a lot more stabbings, but there's also a lot more, uh, you know, fun. Uh, there's historical societies and all that. Um, but no, the West side of Cincinnati and Kentucky are sort of one thing. And that's where you have the, like the most angry people imaginable making music. And that's where you have terrible, like courage crew straight edge bands that just can't string two notes together, but they just want to beat you up for smoking a cigarette. And that's where you have, um, through that, sometimes awesome things happen. So West Side of Cincinnati is where Foxy Shazam, uh, Shazam is from. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some cool bands that came out of there. There was, I mean, when I was younger, there's uh, Close to Home and a few other bands that have done well in their careers. But it's always from that area. The East Side bands tend to be the bands that go more, uh, I guess it was just they were more musically talented. They had more money so they could learn. They could go to music school and all that <laughs> stuff. And they would never come down and play. There was a few. But they were, when like that whole scene kid, like emo kid thing started, that's where all the, those kids were from because they could afford to go get like the, the special jeans and the, the hair products to dye their hair a certain way and all that. Right. They could afford Hot Topic. Yeah. There you go. Thanks. Which I, not, not, there was no Hot Topics on the West Side of Cincinnati. No. I would get all my clothes uh, when I was a kid at a very sketchy place, uh, with a lip service catalog that you know, I had sure. to order like the, you know, it was like, a, it really was because, and I try to explain this to people when, um, when I was dressing and looking the way that I was 
as a, as a kid in 2002, 2003, that whole, I didn't, I was unaware of what was happening with the whole, like, you know, from first to last and all that. Like I, I joke with Matt Good, who's my, been my friend for years, is that I had no idea that he was who he was. I just saw that as the, like, that wasn't me. I was into the misfits and I had this and my hair was this way because of this. And I went, would go to this place called Sentiments, which was run by, I'm pretty sure a drug dealer. And all of it was just, you know, the bootleg, like Gigi Allen shirts and everything. And I would, you know, save my money up and I'd order TUK shoes and the lip service pants that you'd have to cut the straps off or else you can't. Cause I mean, I, I guess they're meant for some function. I'm, I still have not figured out what <laughs> my, I think my best bet for that function is so that people can't escape during a fire very effectively. That's why you have the tie together. Like so you can just sort of jump. And I don't know. Is a sexual de- 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 death trap would be a good clothing line. name. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, it wasn't until later that all that stuff started to come down West. And then that's when I was around the time that I wound up, I was getting older and that's when like anyone who had any kind of, uh, I guess, ingenuity, I saw there was a hot topic that was built in our neighborhood and I saw all these kids start doing this and dressing this way. And I'm like, look, I don't like the music that you like, but I'm pretty sure that I, there's something about what I do that you'll understand. So I'm never going to make the under oath, that kind of stuff that you guys are all listening to. But I feel like there's something about like, let me, here, check this out. Look at what I'm doing. And that's when I would, you know, make covers of Alkaline Trio songs or whatever. And like, look at this. Do you like this? You know, I know you like that, but like, look. So you always felt like you were a step ahead of them or you were trying to stay a step ahead of where the rest of the crowd was going. No, I just hated it. I didn't like it. I didn't, I was, I was too, um, all the reasons that people hate us now, I understand because when I was a kid, I couldn't imagine anything that could be worse than Good Charlotte or Simple Plan or all these bands that were popular because to me it was like you're offending Rancid or whatever, all these things that I was so, I had such strong beliefs for someone who knew nothing as a kid. Like I knew what punk rock was. I'm a kid from Cincinnati. I didn't know what punk rock was to save my life, but I thought I did. And so I had that hatred for popularity and things that were, you know, if, if a girl's liked it, I was like, uh, which now is so ridiculous by the way, because the only girls that I wanted to be with anyway would have only liked me because of the bands that I liked. But that's a whole separate thing. I didn't realize until <laughs> I got older. Feeding in a yeah, way, exactly. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I should have been going like, Oh, you like good Charlotte. They're popular. I'm the weird looking kid. I could cachet this, you know, but no, never, never paid attention to that. Um, so when I was younger, it was, it was really about, I didn't, I couldn't understand the like little girl whiny voice with the brick, like all the stuff that's still amazingly still so prevalent. Never, I never understood it. And it wasn't about making something better or making, it was just, I felt like there was a way that I could do music that was genuine to what I wanted to do that would still appeal to those people. But I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to pander. I didn't want to try to do that. And as a kid, I had no idea what I was doing. I was not a good songwriter. I wasn't until recently that I even learned how to write songs in terms of structure. Our first record has no bridges on it because I didn't know how to write a bridge. I just go, well, I'll just yell here. That's what I do because I don't know how to. <laughs> the only reason we ever had screaming in the band is because I had no idea how to write a bridge. That's to God's honest truth. And I've told people this before. People are like, why don't you bring back the screaming? I learned how to write a song. I, well, the only reason that was there was because I was too chicken shit to try to figure out how to write a separate section on the song. But. Having said that, as a kid, I had all these ambitions and you want to do all that you want to sound like. The Misfits meets Motley Crue, it's what, like all this sure. stuff. And, you, you, know. you, you were your inspirations. Your first few releases, especially your first one, is basically you paying tribute to all your idols. Right. So uh, what, did you, because you were the, were you really a one man army like at that point or were you, did you kind of have a posse of like other kids that kind of looked up to you or that hung out with you and like you guys were like the, the cool, cool kids? Like No, this? it went in phases. My like So when I was really young... Um, I had, I had the strangest of posses. I grew up in the first neighborhood that we lived in until we moved. My I was one of maybe five uh, white kids in my in my school. It was a very predominantly black, very oppressed area. Um, 
And I got along super well because the one thing that in my life I've always had is that I was always a little different. And those kids, this is right around the time where Cincinnati had race riots and uh, young black kids were getting treated like shit by like important white people. Cops hated them. Like I, and I associated with that. So I got along well with more than anything else. I got along really well with like young, angry black kids. And that was my whole thing as a, as a kid. So all my friends were like, you know, there's a couple, there were a couple of black kids who found Metallica. So they were suddenly interested in like, you know, the white kid who had the kiss t-shirt, like, what is that? You know? And so they come over to my house. So my friend group was either special needs kids that were being treated like shit by everybody that I was a friend to, or young black kids who were more angry, who found body count or something and were more angry than the sure. kids that were listening to Shaggy and they wanted to know what's the, the heavy metal thing. And that's really all I had when I was super young. And then when we moved uh, to the, the neighborhood that my parents still live in now, that was when I became, there were no black. And actually the first, first day that we got there, the woman who lived next to us, uh, she, she found out where we were from and she goes, well, thank God we got you away from all those black kids. And we were like, what? Cause it I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that anybody would have to me, racism seemed crazy cause I didn't have it. And that I learned that through the, the Catholic, you know, world that I was in, I learned racism, bigotry, all the things that I did was unaware of as a little kid, because people don't realize that in, in neighborhoods that are not, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Like I couldn't, when you don't have a lot of money or whatever else, you don't, you, I, it's amazing to me that anybody would ever, you they don't put it as a, as a, as a forethought. If someone's black or gay or whatever else, like it's not the things there that you can't, you don't choose that. So that's what you are. It's fine. That's what it mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't matter because of, um, there's so much shit around you. Why would you ever want to focus on something that someone can't help anyway? And it's their life and it's their business. Um, and that's when money and religion and power and all the things that allow for comfort, come in, then you can start to pick and choose the things that you want. And I had, I was completely unaware of that until I became maybe 11 years old and I saw all this. And that's when I became immediately detached from everybody because I suddenly, I didn't know why, but I hated all this. I didn't want to be around this and I couldn't put my finger on it until later, but that's when I became detached from the religious aspect of everything. I was always in trouble. That's when like the, like James Dean kid thing came in where I was complete, you know, smoking cigarettes outside of school, like rebel kid wanted to be different. That's when I found like real punk rock in my, in my estimation for me. Like when I, that's when I found like Lords of the New Church and Dead Boys and the Damned and all that stuff because it, it was more aggressive than, cause I had heard Misfits stuff when I was a kid, but it was, you know, Michael Graves era Misfits was a little bit more Saturday night and poppy and it was more palatable to like a kid that liked kiss and stuff. But then the aggression as of getting older than I wanted to listen to other stuff. And then that's when I got into like early AFI. And that was cause it was right around the time that art of drowning came out. I didn't know anything about sure. that band, but I was like, Oh, Hey, this is misfits meets damn angry. Like this is what I want to do. So updated. Yeah, exactly. And that's when I became so into all that. So my, in terms of friends, I started out social and then part of the result of the, the environment I was in and then also my own choice to be detached, I became completely solitary. And I mean like nobody. And it never even, in all the pictures that we, I, I've shown you guys of like stuff I built and everything, it never dawned on me that there was other people outside. And my dad always teased me that girls would stand outside of our house. Even though the internet was around. Right, well, we didn't, we had a dial-up computer. I couldn't, I never oh, I used see. it. Um, girls, my dad would tease me. I was unaware girls would stand outside while I was singing and they'd be like, you know, listening to me sing and they thought it was interesting, but I, I couldn't care. I'd sing in my room and that's all I wanted to do. They'd be standing outside your, your, your bedroom or you'd be outside your window? Outside our house because they could hear house. me through the bedroom window. And I, to, I don't believe him, but to this day he says they were. And uh, I think it's funny because it, I, in a way it shows that I was so, I would have loved to talk to girls, but I was like, I don't care. I'm going to be, you know, the kid. I have to hone my skills and be whatever I wanted to be. And because you have to understand also that 
I knew, I was angry at this point, like a lot of kids, and it was a great time to be angry because there there are phases in America where there's political situations that are happening where if you know nothing about politics, you can still hook on to something. And mm-hmm. I, like a lot of kids, hooked on to the Bush administration. Is, sure. I can hate this. And it was a great time to hate something. It was a great administration for punk rock. Exactly. And right. you had on television, you had The Daily Show was at its height. And, you sure. Know, that was, I've always had a deep love of comedy, stand-up comedy. Uh, most people don't know that I don't listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot more stand-up comedy that I listen to. Who's your favorites before we digress? I don't want to digress too far down this, but who's your favorites? Just curious. Um, I used to be really into the the more aggressive, like Bill Hicks, the more aggressive stuff. Oh, sure. The older I get, I like just funny stuff. That's why I like Louis C.K., but, um, you know, Bill Hicks, David Cross, Louis, uh, Patton Oswalt's always been great. I like Paul F. Tompkins. Um, Just the the basic kind of that that early 90s alternative comedian uh, scene, the the Mr. Show dudes and everything. Because you did the funny or die thing. Yeah. And and so I didn't know if that was something, this connection there, like we're going to see more of that somewhere down the road maybe? You're going to start? I write stand-up sometimes. My cousin does stand-up sets and I write some of his sets. Really? I I couldn't, I don't, I'm not, everybody that I know in the comedy community always tells me I should do stand-up just because to do it for the first time. But I'm I'm too, like I don't, the thing I always tell, nobody wants to fucking see me do comedy, man. Like nobody, that's, you know what I mean? Like I... The reason I love comedians is that there's something so, there's something about them that is so much more vulnerable. And like, there's something about a guy who is sweating his ass off and, you know, 70 pounds overweight and is angry <laughs> than like the skinny rock and roll guy. Like nobody gives a shit about my problems. Like, you know, it doesn't, even if I am genuine, an audience isn't going to read that. I can go on stage and give aggression and anger. And then I can also smile at people on stage and make them feel empowered but I can't do that in, in comedy. So I don't know how, that's why I like doing the improv bits like we do with the, the show that uh, I produce with, with my cousin um, or writing stand up for stuff he does or friends do because I can still get that out, but I'm not, it's not disingenuous. And the one thing I hate, regardless of whether it's self-inflicted or not, is something that's super disingenuous. That's interesting that, that, cause usually a singer it sometimes can be kind of like that is their world and, and they'll get pulled into doing acting. They'll get pulled into other things where they'll be performing, but they still singing. And there's just something about that world that is very comforting to mm-hmm. them. And it's very, it's not just familiar, but there's just something like, I know I can control this, well, we haven't but done outside anything. that I can't control it. We haven't done anything about it yet, but my cousin and I are writing a screenplay that based on, um, the, what's funny is, okay, so I, he he will we like to view the, the communities because he's involved in the comedy community in LA and I'm a musician and we like to cross the two things. Like I brought Danny came in and did uh, from Ask Alexandria, did an episode on like, I like to bring people in from our world and guys in my band have done it. But um, we always joke that if someone in the the music world that has, has had success comes in and works on our show, that's immediately the best thing in the episode everybody talks about. But the ancillary people in the show who have been struggling for years and acting sure. and went to AMDA and all this, nobody cares that they're there. So, and it's not because they are, it's just that there's a certain, the nature of fans of music is a little bit more passionate. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we're writing, we're working on a screenplay about the idea that it's a kind of a, a fictionalized version of both of us where he's been it's a documentary crew are following two people and the, the, you don't realize that they're involved at all until the middle. But the, it basically starts with following the life of um, this stand up who's struggling and failing and, you know, playing the, you know, fucking Red Lobster or whatever and nobody pays attention. And then they, it cuts to me. My character is just sitting one day in a room and eating popcorn. I'm like, I think I'd like to do stand up. And then like immediately it's just, you know, like Russell Brand style. I'm on the billboards and people sure. love me. I, but I don't, I don't do stand up at all. I just go and tell jokes, but I'm just like, you know, cool and everybody loves it. And then you just keep cutting back and forth and then eventually you realize these people are related and they've had the same genetic makeup. But for some reason, one person was able to just always push ahead, which to me is that's what makes 
uh, a comedian funny is when they're never able just to get to him. And this is oh, why you can't, Dane yeah. Cook wasn't able to keep anything in my estimation because he, I think a lot of Dane Cook jokes were funny. I just, I know that people thought he was cheesy or whatever, but I think you can't, there has to be a struggle for someone to love a comedian. In the same way that a punk rock band, Anti-Flag or somebody, has to have a struggle. And when that struggle is gone, it's very hard for people to continue to be so passionate about them. Well, plus, yeah, I think there could be something debated that uh, that a, the comedian can't be the heartthrob. Right. And I think when they start marketing Dane Cook as like this hot, you know, single sexy guy and stuff, I think is when it started falling apart for him because Absolutely. you can't be that perfect. You have to be the, the, you have to be the nerd. You have to be the, the one that's slightly defective or the one that's never really gets the girl in the end and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, they all want the chaplain ending going down the street with the girl, but, but that's very few and far between. Can't do it. Can't do can't it because do- it ruins the, uh, the reason why Woody Allen is still making movies and all this is because sure. they, they, there's a certain, you have to understand something you can't be, um, they always have to. And, and this is the one thing about comedy that I love more than anything that not a lot of people understand is you always have to be the fool, no matter what it is. And sure. I hate whenever he and I will do when Joe and I will do a scene where he, I have to be the straight guy because I know that I'm not getting the, the laugh there. Cause I, and that's why I love, I don't mind debasing myself. Like I'm a terrible version of myself in that show. Cause I love being the fool. Could you ever seriously mock yourself? Uh, it's, it, I think the only, the only distinction between seeing what I like when I'm playing myself in this show, it's that like a one degree of separation because it's still the character version of myself. Oh, the version of me that's an average Joe would do that. But I think it'd be a lot harder to try to directly go like, um, in a route of making a spoof on who I really am because it's a little too sacred in a way. And it's it's like that movie, this is the end that came out and all the actors were coming in and basically making fun of themselves in a way. And it kind of like brought in humility a lot for them. And if you read the Rotten Tomatoes reviews for that movie, they, all the actors get a lot of props for like basically saying, wow, like they actually made fun of themselves or like their persona. But that's a little bit even closer. And that's why I would agree that I would give them, um, some form of a prop, so to speak, because it's not even if what I'm doing in the, in my little show is it's, uh, it's still a version of me that the audience knows that I'm not getting girls knocked up and killing them and sending them to Mexico. The audience knows that I don't have a drug addiction. The audience knows like that. These are all things that you take as red going in. Whereas we don't, the audience watching this is the end. There's plenty of people who don't know whether or not, you know, they like Jonah Hill is such a big, like you don't know. And that's what I really loved about that was they took it as this might be the real version of these people. And not to say that, you know, it's maybe it's, it's still a wink and a, and a, and a little bit of a, uh, you know, a a slapstick thing, but it's still a look behind the curtain enough, which is something that I've never done that I think would be interesting. So girls are hanging outside your house, being creeps, listening to you, being stalkers and listening to you sing. And, uh, and, and as you kind of mentioned briefly, um, you at the time, uh, which I thought was actually just so, uh, it, it's such a really um, great moment in your life that you shared uh, with uh, the story uh, where you built the, the KISS stage sets and that sort of thing. What else did you, what, what are the things like that that you did or was that kind of like that it? It was constant, man. Um because I used to love yeah, the thing was like I just I loved having something tangible and whatever it was in forms of, uh, in any kind of art form that I could make that was I don't know if it was a control thing but like I liked that I could do something that was right here and the world couldn't tell me that I couldn't do it and whether sure. I was action figures or whatever else you know I liked that I could build a stage the way I wanted it to and um, you know I could 
it just felt more like this is what I'm going to do on a larger scale. Or this is what I want to do when I grow up or whatever. But it was doing it immediately because a lot of kids dream of being in a band or they, you know, they have the acoustic guitar with the, you know, the string over it. And there's the pictures of them. But like I wanted to be it was a pain in the ass constantly that I couldn't be a rock star at age six. You know, like it was always from, from the time I was old enough to know what that was. It was constantly like, just come on. Can I just be a little bit like, are you going to take me seriously yet? And then literally from 13 on, it was like, just kept, are you guys ready yet? I'm too young. Are you ready yet? Can I do this now? Can I play music now? And, uh, so it's just waiting all the time. So that was something that I could do when I was a kid building the stages and putting together set lists for what the band might play. And, that was all stuff that I could do. And even though it wasn't real, I could lose myself in that world and I could be, I could close my eyes and I felt like this was something that was a show. Cause I couldn't too young to go to shows too young to, I could go to kiss shows, like, but I couldn't go to the shows that I wanted to. If social distortion came through town, I couldn't go as a seven year old or whatever, you know, like these are things I couldn't do. So I had control of that. So then when I got older, it became doing it on the scale of now I was the action figure in a sense. Like I would build fake grids in my room with scaffolding and you saw like my ceiling on my room was all these bands that I wanted and I would just sit and play and then I met a couple kids and I'd move down to the garage and we'd play and it was like it was almost in a way it was substituting the action figures for me like because it wasn't no one's watching me do it but it still felt important sure you know? sure do you think uh you know as 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 the band started going, you know, you've got the world and your you have like a vision in your head of how you want it to go and how you see it going and stuff like that and how that world of rock and roll and the music industry and stuff is. Uh, and when was the first like wake up call where like, boom, you hit reality. Like, wow, this isn't really like it's how I thought it would be. Like um, the industry is like either hit you or you found that maybe it wasn't so easy or something like that. I think, I don't think I, the thing you have to understand is that I was, it maybe it wasn't until I, I mean, maybe in the last four to five years that I really started to have any sense of humility or any kind of understanding of what was happening around me. I was always so blinders, you know, straightforward. People would say things, throw things at me. We would have disappointments. You know, we would, you know, like anybody you play a show, nobody's there. You don't get paid. Somebody steals money from you. People steal your gear, all the stuff that bands go through. But I didn't, I was always like, well, that's just a thing that's happening. It doesn't matter. That's what happened now. It won't happen tomorrow. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. It wasn't until later, like probably once Blackfield Brides had become an established band that I started to really realize something could happen wrong because in, in those early days, it was so important to me. It's almost like a fight or flight thing, but a constant, I couldn't let anything negative affect me because that it would, you know, I had this abiding belief that it would eat me alive if I let something in at all. Um, which is where, you know, sort of that cross section of like, am I going to be, uh, the lead singer in a band or am I becoming some sort of like, you know, weird dream militant guy? It's like, you know, do I, am I ever going to make friends? Anybody like, and it wasn't, I, that is probably the, the thing of my life that is the strangest section is that first, you know, the last year of when I started actually like local touring from 17, you know, 16 to 17, doing regional touring in the area and losing my ass on money and getting, you know, stuck places and have to stay in basements and all that to then coming out to LA and having no one, no friends, nobody, and not really in having to start all over again. So, um, I think that that's probably the first time that I ever started to think at all about it because I realized that I had not done anything towards keeping I didn't care because the people around me were shit. I mean, they wound up suing me later anyway. Like they were shitty people anyway. So it wasn't like I lost out on opportunities to make friends, but I 
I, I think the big thing is I, I didn't give a shit about people's personalities as long as they would play music in my band and dress the way that I wanted them to and all that. And I and so in that regard, the blinders didn't serve me well because I didn't pay attention to signs that maybe I shouldn't be around this person. And that stayed on until 2010 even, you know, um, where I was not paying attention to the signs of what people are or knowing that they seemingly were not good people for me or to be around. But I didn't care because it was all towards this thing and God damn, I got to reach this thing. Sure. You know. Do you, um, do you, uh, what was, we did I'm still kind of curious about it because I kind of felt like it wasn't really fully answered in the story, but how do, there's a lot of kids, especially in the Midwest, and you, see, you meet them every day on the road, where they have that dream. They want to go to New York. They want to go to L.A., right? And they want to be, or maybe Nashville now, and they want to become the big singer, star, or whatever the thing is, but they're afraid. I didn't want to go to L.A. I had no idea about really? L.A. As a kid, my aspiration was never to be in New York or L.A. I could be from Cincinnati and be rocks. I didn't know that that was a thing. It wasn't until I went to Los Angeles on a completely unrelated thing, which was I started going to uh, performing arts school and um, they told me that I was good at, you know, acting and everything and that maybe you should audition for these people that we have come and are the talent agents for Los Angeles, whatever, didn't know anything about it. So I did a monologue from Harvey, which was my favorite. Really? Uh, yeah. Jimmy Stewart was my favorite when I was younger. I was wanted to be like Jimmy Stewart in some capacity, um, but I did a monologue from Harvey and uh, they liked it and took me... Uh, back to the little like office area and had me call my mom and they're like, we think he could be a star. And my mom, they're like, all right, whatever. Like the, fortunately my parents are smart enough to not be duped into all the things that all these people get duped into. But my mom goes here, look, if you really believe that I have like three weeks of vacation time, um, I'm willing to, to take that vacation time. But you, you know, if you think, if you think we can do it, we've got a little bit of money saved. We were going to go on a vacation, but this is my kid's passion. Like we'll, we'll do this. So my dad had to stay back home. My mom and I went out to LA um, well, first we went to Dallas for some reason. First, the, you know, the, that's always the pit stop. There's like the thing you have to go to first to pay a bunch more money yeah, so right. that I could win a bunch of trophies or something. Like I was, yeah. Uh, What'd you have to do there? I, I became the top male model and top actor at the Mike Beatty Expo, which is just a way of losing <laughs> money on the way to LA. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just basically you're just buying yourself, but like, what, what, what did you do Harvey for that too? Yeah. That? And then I sang uh green day time of your life and made little girls swoon. And that's when, uh, <laughs> made, uh, and that's Is there when, a video of that. Your mom's got a video. There has to be somewhere. Um, <laughs> but that's when, uh, the people, because the Mike Beatty expert was where these talent scouts really were. And so they take you there and they, you've learned that the people who are at your school have nothing to do with it. They're just the <laughs> conduit. And now there's more money to be had. So, I get all these people, oh, we're going to make you a star, we're going to do all this. And there was just like a couple people who were like, okay, look, again, we have three weeks. You've got two weeks and some days left. You, here you go. Give it a shot. So we got out to LA and my mom's like, okay, what we can do is I think that we can try to work with your school. They're performing arts school. Um, I can stay out here a little bit longer. I can, it's not, we can't stay out too long, but we can do like two months. You know, and at the most, which is not a bad yeah. amount of time, right? It's nowhere near what the people go out. And, I mean, six months is the pilot or pilot season thing where people go stay at Oakwood, and you've seen like you, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen the documentaries, like the most like sure, yeah, yeah. sad. That's where the heartache comes from. But we had two months, and I had no idea how to audition for things. I had no idea what I was doing, but I didn't really want to be an actor. I wanted to be in bands, but I, again, it was like, am I ready yet? No, okay, I'll do this. Like nobody wants to take me seriously it's in performing. bands. Performing, yeah. Right. So I want to be on a stage. I want to do something. Um, and immediately people started paying attention to, I was, it's so funny when you aren't aware of what you're supposed to be doing, how much that seems revolutionary. Like, and when you don't know that you're supposed to be 
All right, so there was, I'll give you an example. The first audition I ever went to, the dress code for, you know, because these auditions, you have to, everybody looks a certain way when they walk in there. The dress code said Midwest casual. I'm from the Midwest. This is what I look like. This is my casual. I come in and they're like, whoa, look at rock and roll guy. But I had no idea. So I started getting attention as being edgy. That was my new thing. I'm edgy. And I wasn't, I was a kid. I didn't dress. I wasn't wearing like, you know, Blackville Brides set the world on fire clothes. I was a black, like Guns N' Roses shirt and jeans. You were Johnny Depp. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. But that was edgy. And uh, so I started getting attention for that. And I booked. Typecast? No, but just anything. Like I started booking stuff all the time. I was getting callbacks all the time. I was, I was, I got two commercials right away. I became the AT&T guy. I did a thing with Tony K from American History X for the meth commercial that everybody's Mm -hmm. seen. Like I was doing crazy. And then it was the end of the two months and we're like, okay, well we have to go back home now. And I have an agent manager. They're like, what you're doing? Like kids don't do this. And we're like, yeah, but I don't really want to like, thank you so much. But like, we don't have the money to be out here and we're going to go back home now. And thank you though for the experience. But at that point, being in Los Angeles, the one thing I did hold on to is even though I didn't enjoy the acting, I started to see the remnants of the rock and roll culture. And I started to, you know, I realized that I would go down to uh, Hollywood Boulevard and I'd see people that kind of look like me. And it wasn't just in the sketchy neighborhoods or just, you know, it wasn't just the crust punks that were hanging on outside of the college. Like it was like people that were interesting looking and, um, I think it was, it was I, to see people with like, you know, uh, the damn shirts on or something was weird. Cause I had never seen that before in my whole life. Did I'd you feel part seen. of like, this is the pot, this was, this was the crowd that you meant to be with or did you feel intimidated by them? A I bit? liked it. It was exciting. I never cared about LA. I didn't have that, um, gotta be in Hollywood thing. Like Hollywood was nothing to me. It was, I, I, cause to me it was like, Kiss wasn't from New York or whatever. They were just, they were, they were, so they started here and then they were American. Right. And that was always my goal was to be America, USA. Like I wanted to be wherever I was from. I was still the biggest thing in, in when I was little. And I, so much, I didn't learn about the world. I didn't know that there were, you could be big in other countries. I didn't, I was just, when I was a little kid, you're like, I want to be that. Right. Um, and, but that, and not like, uh, to still, I think I, it's so weird because I look at it as a kid and like, I wanted to be equal parts like political, like born in the USA, kind of Bruce Springsteen and, uh, you know, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley when I was real little. And then the older I got, it became less and less about the showman and the fame and everything. It was like, I want to be in- interesting and important. Um, anyway, so I, I went to LA and I, and I really loved it. And then that's when I had that fall in love with Hollywood and that's when I became obsessed with going back. And I would, the the most negative thing that happened to me is that we flew back from uh, LA for the first time. And I'm expecting to go back to my school, the performing arts school that I got into. That is my favorite, it's my favorite place in the world. It meant everything to me. When I try to like explain to people that that was the first time in my entire life, it was a two year period where I was dating girls. I was cool. Like, I, you know, like, I got along, I got to perform. People liked me. It was amazing. And then they changed artistic directors and I got back from LA and I go, guys, I just did all this performing stuff in LA. Like I can't wait back to come back to school. Nope. Not allowed in. We changed our policy. You can't leave school for three months to try to come back. Are you kidding me? No way. And we so did, you left during the school year. It wasn't but we had agreed summer. with the previous art director oh. that I was going to go out and they actually sent me work to do out there. But the new guy came in and budget cuts. He didn't want to have to bring kids back in. So I was doing schoolwork and sending it in. And then while I was gone in that two months, they changed people who was in charge of that decision. And he decided that when I got back, you're done. And there's never been anything that when I was little, that was more crushing for me. 
But that is when, so I go, what the hell am I going to do? Like, I don't, this is the only place that I've ever belonged. Like, I don't, I don't want to go back to fucking Delhi and sit in my room and be sad. And then that's when I discovered MySpace and the internet and all that. And that's when I was like, wow, there's all these people in the world who feel like me. And there was like a, a, almost an entire school year period there where I would just sit. And that's when I started a MySpace page and I was taking pictures of myself and all that shit. And, you know, but it was like fun. It was like all these people like this shit too. Like people, you, you like Tiger Army? I thought only I liked, you know. Right. Well, you kind of became, well, at least it was described, um, kind of somewhat of a, I don't know, pseudo, not a celebrity, but like you start building up and like people start following you like right, crazier and crazier. Right. And it was for, and I never understood why. And, and you didn't day, have a band at that point. From. No. Well, I had. Or did you? Uh, no. No. Yeah. No, I didn't. That was right when I started. So when I first started, I think it was just the look, you know, I was an interesting looking kid and that's before the, it was the very beginnings of what became the whole like scene kid thing. But I was. What I was doing at the time, I was estimating. I look. I thought I looked like Sam Hain. I didn't know that that was going to become, you know, the thing. So then, it, and then of course, when that happened, I was like, "Well, fine, I'll be important in this world, I guess." Like, <laughs> I, I, I've always looked this way. So if you guys want to, I mean, you know, if you got, if you're going to do it too, I guess I'll, I'll be the king of you. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Just you know, one of the cool things that you know, if you go on IMDb, right, and you hang on IMDb, and one of the best parts about IMDb is the tri- is the trivia part, right? Yeah. And it's all and the stuff that they usually talk about is is like the stuff that the the things that almost happened, you know, or the things that kind of did happen that people don't like. So you're back at this back up this about five minutes, and you're back in Hollywood, and you're getting thrown all these commercials and all this other stuff. What are the things you turned down? Um, I. Being a rock and roll guy who was excited to meet Hannah Montana. Okay. I was offered a guest spot on Hannah Montana as someone who was very excited to meet Hannah Montana, but it was supposed to be like a rock and roll looking guy. And I was going to like be her biggest fan. She, there was the episode was like, she goes to the radio station and then there's like a guy who comes in and, you know, obviously it wasn't a real role, but it was like, I could, I can't do that. I don't even know what this is, but I can't. <laughs> You couldn't. Because what they do is with that stuff, they, they siphon it out in different directions. So you, the kids go in to audition for a general thing. And then you, if they like you, they, you, you know, a 14 year old will go have a general meeting with the head of Disney or something. And they'll look at you and they'll pick you apart. It's insane. They'll pick you apart and judge you and decide what you're going to be. And then in a week and a half, if they really like you, they'll give you a chance to audition for something. And again, it's not ever made specific until they tell you what they think you're right for. But you just keep reading the same thing over and over again. So I got a general meeting with Disney. You know, because I was going to, in their estimation, I, you know, because they always have the, their lines. He's going to be, you can be like our edgy guy that we have, but we want to start you low first. So here's the Hannah Montana. I'm like, eh, that's all right, guys. Like, it's, thank you. It's not my thing. And thank God, because I, that's not something I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the things I did do, well, the AT&T thing's a little silly, but I didn't do anything that was ridiculous. The Montana meth thing I'm proud of, because it's fucking crazy right ed french who did the uh makeup for batman returns did all my crazy makeup tony k directed it like that's for for a random like commercial it's the most it's the most credibility based commercial i can imagine <laughs> like um which is uh you know it wasn't intentional but i think that the reason that i ever got cast and that was because i was that kind of weirdo and they were like oh we want one of you actually i forgot the, the story on that is pretty funny um so one of the things that you do when you're one of those kids that goes to Hollywood is you have to always be perfect all the time. People ask you questions. You have to know exactly how to answer them. And you have to answer in the most goddamn that kid's cute way possible all the time. (laughs) 
And I didn't know any of that shit. I didn't know that going there. So they, we, the audition for the first round of auditions for the meth commercial was at a coffee shop and they line everybody up and they go down the line and they go, um, Hey, do you, uh, do you guys, have you guys ever had any express, uh, experience with anyone using drugs in your life? Go down the line. No, sir. Everyone I know is rainbows. And I was, <laughs> they come to me and I go, well, yeah. And they're like, really? And I was like, yeah, I've, I've met some drug addicts. Do you, do you have any stories? And I just started telling stories like, yeah, I had a friend who did meth actually he wound up, but we didn't know where he was. He didn't come to school for like four days. He found him in a park. He dated my friend. You know, I'm just saying, I'm just going on. And all these kids are like, what is he doing? And, then, and like kids are snickering like this kid's shooting himself in the foot. And then the next day I got a call like, that was really awesome because like we see these pretentious kids all day long every day. And I was like, I didn't even know. I was just, you asked me a question. I was just telling you the answer to it. I didn't know I was supposed to be like sunshine, smiles, everything's perfect, Midwest, whatever, like. They're all from Texas too, all those kids. They're always like, even if they aren't from Texas, they always say that they're, for some reason, it's the best thing to be from Dallas when you're in Hollywood. It, to play acoustic guitar terribly, wear sandals and be from Dallas, it's a surefire way. <laughs> and nothing against people from Dallas. I just, if you aren't from Dallas and you go to Hollywood, say you're from Dallas. They all love it. it everybody, you'll get cast in a million things. I think this is the name of your how-to Hollywood book is just yeah. Say You're From Dallas. Say You're From Dallas. Exactly. Andy Grusek. That's the name of my memoirs. <laughs> I like to name memoirs. That's one of my hobbies. I never will have a memoir that's named any of these things, but if I can think, I, like funny memoir names are my favorite. What's, what's come on? You, you got, I remember, can't think. There's so many. There's so many, man. I got, well, I do them for my, like my friends too, and they're usually personal jokes, so I don't want to expose Right, I get all that. Yeah, right. But, um, but yeah, there you go. You so, so you've been on Hollywood now, Dallas, and you've been, and you've been, you know, you've been, uh, and Juliet comes from, she's been really deeply involved in all that as well lately, and, and. Uh, so do you see these kids that are basically were you? So what happened was me being the weird kid or whatever, I started to meet girls and girls were the way into me wanting to come back to Hollywood. And that's the weirdest thing that I find is when I look at, um, what the Hollywood world is, you start to see all these kids, you know, uh, dating and there's these clusters of kids that all hang out together. And I was weirdly part of that. And a lot of like the people that I was around are a lot of them now are very successful. And that's however my way into wanting to come back to LA was dating these girls who are now a lot of them are actually very successful actresses. Haven't seen them in years, but I would, I was like, Oh, I have to go back and see girls. Cause suddenly now it's understand that again, I had never realized how much I loved women until they wanted to pay attention to me. And I'm like, well, this is fantastic. <laughs> isn't this great how this works out? You think I'm interesting and James Dean like, and I like your boobs. Like, isn't this awesome? <laughs> um, so that was, and then that's the only reason I ever went back to LA was girls. I was like, I'm going to be one of those, like, I'm going to be the, the, you know, sunset strip dude. And I'm going to hang out with all the girls. Is that where you hung out in the strip there? Was there like, no, no, I wanted you or a restaurant or no, man, I couldn't go down there. I didn't know people didn't even want me down there. I didn't, I, I hung out in like South Fairfax and little Ethiopia and places that kids were skateboarding. And like, there was, I didn't, I, the, the sunset strip thing didn't occur to me until I wanted to go do that, but it didn't occur to me to go down there until I had like, I don't know. People don't go down there and do anything. Right. People go down there when they have a band or they want to be seen by people as looking cool. And I was not ready for that when I first started coming to LA. And really, to be honest with you, if I can backtrack a little bit. Sure. I started dating a girl who was an actress. And that is really the way that I started coming back to Los Angeles. And because I was able to, by the time I'm 16, I have a band back home that's, I'm playing local shows um, called Beer Sack. 
<laughs> with a 55 year old drummer and like just random. It looked like the UN just ran <laughs> <laughs> and, and me with giant fucking crazy kid hair and like, you know, eye makeup like this. And I'm wearing like tuxedo, just the most random outfits, batting gloves and tuxedos with hair that's this tall. Like, <laughs> experimental face to say the least uh you know matching my eyeshadows and my shoes um <laughs> bowie would have been proud yeah see there right. you go uh so but because of that I'm, I'm starting to date these girls and I, one girl in particular she and i get serious and she's an actress so she is just turning 18 um she's starting to make enough money that now she's going to move out of her parents house and she's going to get her own place which is a huge thing for me because now it allows for me to go visit someone and not have to like pay for hotels or whatever else like and she i'm right. uh, of course i'm a kid i'm in love with this girl you know she's everything i write her letters and first love whatever yes absolutely okay. absolutely oh first yeah love. then you're then you're uh, yeah you're so sunk. i'm you're yeah sunk. so i need to be with her all the time right so the reality like all that stuff the logistics of like now i get to say some more it didn't matter to me i would have got, gone and stayed on her porch outside but then she starts to like she's uh, starts to hook up with like dudes in bands that are successful bands so eats my heart out she's cheating on me all this but now i'm like but wait, I have to go back out there. So now I'm a little guilty of this in my head. I'm starting to think like, man, what, what can I do, you know, to, uh, to like get out there. So I have to, I, we're going to make amends. We'll, we'll fix the relationship. So we fix the relationship. I go, I start living with her. We hate each other. I do. We're, we're kids. You know, why do you right. stupid shit to her? She does stupid shit to me. It's a terrible relationship because we don't know how to do it. We're both kids that shouldn't be living alone yet, but are, are trying to, but because of that, um, if it wasn't for her and for all the shit that we went through in our life um, and all the stuff that maybe she did to me or I did to her, if it wasn't for her and her giving me the chance to stay somewhere um, and loving me like she did for whatever, you know, for what we did or what we didn't do at the time, we cared a lot about each other. And if it wasn't for her, I would have never had the chance to really spend any time in Los Angeles. Sure. And so um, I'll always be thankful to her for that because I know, and I didn't always know that when I was younger, I always tried to No, I'm making my own way. But if it really wasn't for her, I would have never had these chances. And I would have never met half the people that I met early on that helped me when in my, in my early days. Did she, have you guys made up? No, a, no, I haven't seen her in years. Wow. Um, so when you're doing all this stuff and you're like, so you were, you were doing that, you were living with her in LA when you were 17, 18, mm -hmm. 17. Where were your, your parents? Cause by then you were out of the performing arts school. Yeah, you so were, I, I uh, so quick, like, what were your parents? Stopgap. Yeah, um, like, the, I'm out of the performing arts school. I'm homeschooled. I'm lonelier than hell. That's and right. I, I gained like 50 pounds. Like I'm just a just a fat kid sitting on MySpace all day. Prior to moving to LA. Prior to moving to LA. Right. This is all. We'll go back like a year, year and a half. So I'm completely alone, just eating saltines and sad because I have no social interaction. Because now I've tasted it. When I was young, I saltines didn't care. Saltines and sad. There's a there's an album title. There you go. That's another memoir. Um, <laughs> the fat years. Uh, <laughs> Andy At least Bay. a DVD. Yeah, Andy At Bay least. Sack, the fat years. It's just it's just a static shot camera. Me, <laughs> me, me, um, no, uh, <laughs> so I'm I'm uh, I'm sad, and now I've tasted social interaction, which I never cared about when I was younger. But now I've I've know what it's like to meet people, and I, and I know girls and all this. And I go to my parents and I say, "Look, I don't know what this means, but I think I want to go to regular high school now." I wish this is one of those times where it would be nice to have like a time cop situation where I could go back and just punch myself in the face because I didn't realize that that meant constant misery. And because I'm now you have to understand that 
for since I was a little kid getting beat up in school and Catholic school and all that, I have not experienced bullying for a four year period because I'm go- I've gone to fairyland. I was in a performing arts school where I was the only guy that girls could talk to because all the other dudes were hanging out with each other there. I was at a performing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm I'm the only right. choice. <laughs> right. By right. default, I'm the manliest dude there, and I'm dressing like Alex from A Clockwork Orange on a Wednesday to go to school. Like, but right. all the girls are like, "Well, fuck it. I guess this is what we got." So I'm I'm already there. And then I go to LA and I'm like edgy guy and girls like me there because they're, you know, a little bit more open-minded. I'm different. I'm like you said, I'm like the, the fucking baby Johnny Depp to them. So then I go back home and I'm on MySpace and MySpace people. So I have not experienced what it's like to just go hang out with the football players and all that in a very long time. And I'm ill-prepared to say the least. You, I'm like first day of school, like eyeshadow. It's all great. I'm all ready. I've got my misfit shirt on, all stoked, head in, just hitting that back of the head immediately. Like, oh, really? that's right. I forgot about this. And not only have I not gone to school in a long time, I didn't do any of my schoolwork in homeschool. So I've now been put into like freshman classes. So I'm now a junior or whatever, and I'm in nothing but freshman classes and just miserable. They put me, I was in, I was tested by the state for mental retardation. By the way. Uh, really? Yes. Achieve the highest test score that they had, uh, you could ever get. And I had to explain to them. That needs to be put on your Wikipedia. It's not because I'm retarded. I just am lazy. It's not, I'm smart enough to do this. But what I'm trying to say to you is that I don't need to know about the Magna Carta. It's never going to affect me. Do you know how many times I'm ever going to use algebra? Never. But, you know, here you test me and I did it and whatever. So they put me in a class for math. My mathematics class was me and a kid who, to his credit, he didn't know that it was happening, but all he did was just yell obscenities at the wall and punch it over and over again. So it's me and a guy just saying, fuck you, wall, and punching it over and over again. His name was Jimmy. Me and Jimmy just hanging out. Future TM, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me and Jimmy just hanging out with a, a woman who's just hungover or currently drinking because you, who gives a shit? It's the weird goth kid and Jimmy. Like, they're not going to pay attention. So when we do, like, fourth grade math and then we leave. And, like, you have to understand that for someone like me, I am now in a spiraling, like, circle of hate because I'm not being stimulated mentally at all and everyone around me hates me and thinks I'm the biggest, you know, whatever, fag. Whatever. So I start to fight people. That was my thing. I started yeah. to fight. I got into being aggressive because I needed to defend myself and I needed to fill my time somehow. So... For the first time in my life, I'm now not only in trouble for being weird or different or smoking cigarettes or whatever, now I'm getting in trouble because I'm physically getting into fights all the time because I have to learn to defend myself. But it is at this time that I start to separate. Where When I was a little kid, I always, I would get bullied and made fun of and, and on the same ways that when I was the age of a lot of the kids that the younger audience that we have, and I understand how depressing that could be. But if I didn't go back to high school in, in that time and I didn't, face that bullying on a different scale. I would have never been able to turn the corner and realize how important it is to be mindful of your own self, uh, strength. And that is very important in my life. The fact that I went back and I learned how to fight and I learned how to fight for myself. That's when I started to write songs. Cause I'd always written dumb songs. That's when I started to write real songs. That's when, um, I wasn't just copying alkaline trio songs. That's when I started to write things about what I was feeling. And if it wasn't for that, I would have never had what I had going into LA. I would have never had that feeling. I would have never had the interest in the, the army aspect and all that stuff. Cause I would have, I, w- I almost, I almost fell out of that for a little while because I got to have fun and I got to be treated like a normal person. And I'm not saying that people should have to go through sure. the strife, but in my situation, I don't think I'd have the career that I have if it wasn't for me learning that very key point of fighting for myself. How were the, how are the teachers at the school? Were they blaming you for causing yeah. oh, it? Oh yeah. All the time. 
I got, I mean, I would get kicked out for the silliest things. Like, you know, I would have striped socks on and I would get suspended. You know, it's, I mean, it went on forever, but I always got blamed because I was weird. They didn't want me around there. They didn't want me there. So what they did was they kicked me out of the regular high school. And this is where it became awesome because they put me into a trailer about a mile and a half off of the high school campus. And it is where they sent the kids who maybe had recently murdered someone or, you know, like all of the kids who came out of juvenile detention, but needed to be educated, got put into this trailer. And I felt a little bit more at home there. I was like, you're all, I mean, you're, I've never raped anybody, but I feel like you and I could talk because they hate you and they hate me. Like, I don't want to hang out with you after this, but we can sit together. Right. And they were, I mean, the assignments were ridiculous. This is a real assignment that they gave us because they're afraid of these kids. Right. So the guy comes in and he goes, um, hey, and he puts on two music videos. Toby Keith, we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way or whatever that, you know, and Alan Jackson, where were you when the world stopped turning? We have to right. watch those both. And he goes, all right, now compare and contrast these two music videos and how these two write patriotic songs and then leaves the room. And we're all like, fuck this, no door. one's doing this. <laughs> And so, but I'm, I'm, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, a, I was never like a, I, I guess of all those people, I was trying to consider my way of how I can get out of it. And so then like, maybe I did that for like a couple weeks and then I go like, well, fuck, they don't care if I'm there. I'm just going to drive to Dunkin' Donuts, drive to the place, listen to music, smoke cigarettes in my car, read AP or whatever else I could find and then leave. When the traffic from the school leaves, I'll come back and they'll call my parents and tell them I'm there. They don't fucking care. And so over time, I start to realize that it doesn't matter even if I drive there. So I'm becoming less and less attached because it doesn't, at the end of the day, I'm not going to graduate high school is where this is going. I'm realizing in my head that I don't have what it takes to care about I Am Legend like on, on film with Will Smith and then write a report about it because they've now, they've given up on me. The, the school system has given up on me. They don't think I'm going to learn. I'm, I, have, I stand no chance of learning anything for the rest of my academic career. I already know more than these fucking people anyway because I actually bother to pay attention to the things around me. Why do I do this? I'm done. And I, I explain this to my parents and they don't really fight me on it because they know how, how, sad things have gotten like to go from when I was in SCPA, which is the performing arts school where I loved learning and I loved all that to now to a couple years later. And I'm literally comparing and contrasting country music videos on an academic level. Like even as a parent, you got to be like, well, and I've always been a smart kid. So they couldn't really fight me too much on that. They knew that I was going to find education on my own. Um, I don't love that I dropped out of high school, but I don't, I think high school dropped me off. I don't think that they cared about me anymore. I have a strong case and I've, I've talked to many teachers that I'm friends with now where if you look at my situation, they gave up on me in a way that I had no choice and I wanted to start my life and I could have stayed there and gotten my whatever, but I was mentally, I needed to be stimulated more. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to go to LA full time. I can't do this anymore. I saw, I'm sorry guys. I love you. I have to go. And there was a little bit of fighting back and forth. And they said, you know, when you turn 18, you can go full time. We can't really stop you then. So it was, I think, December 28th or something. But, you know, I turned 18 on the 26th. I got a flight, cheap flight, because I would always have to fly out of wherever, like Dayton or whatever. Because right. I couldn't afford to fly out of Cincinnati. So I got a flight out of Dayton. I took all my stuff. My parents, my mom was still pretending that this was just one, another one of my two week visits where I was going to go see my girlfriend and I'd come yeah, back. Yeah, she said, she said something like that in the story. She's yeah. like, she expected you to be back. Yeah. But, um, I, I think I, my dad and I got into a fight like we always did. And I think he could, cause usually he knew that, you know, he wanted to, I guess he had to get in his last, like, you know, whatever dad thing. And I was like, you know, I'm not coming back. Right. He's like, no water. And then like, I got my shit and left and. I never went back. I never did until, I mean, literally like 
when I sent you that message a couple weeks ago and said Cincinnati, it's the first time I've spent any time in Cincinnati since my grandfather's funeral for a day, the two times we played Warp Tour. That's it. How was that? My grandfather's funeral or no, 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 not your grandfather's funeral. <laughs> you can imagine how one went. Um, <laughs> no, just. Wasn't my favorite day. Had it, I mean, well, cause, because when you've been away from your hometown for a while and you go back, you do have this all of a sudden new sense of objectivity you didn't have before. First Warped Tour was terrible because they all, all the assholes came out. You have to understand that um, Black Veil Brides, when I first started, it was hated strongly because I was so, A, I was egotistical and opinionated and I thought I could stop all the shit around me I thought that I was going to be that punk rock force that was going to do something so you know there was a huge courage crew scene and they would beat up my friends and and I would go on stage and say fuck the courage crew now that's not something that you should do as a 15 year old with a completely defenseless 15 but I thought that I was you know I I don't know I thought saying stuff like that would make people feel something and it did not the greatest thing it made them like want to beat up my parents and cover my house and shit and whatever so I dealt with a lot because of that um but I just, I thought it was wrong. I thought it was wrong that I watched a kid's teeth get kicked out because he smoked a cigarette at a party. I thought it was wrong that um, because I wore makeup and drank uh, a Coca-Cola that had energy in it, that I was going to get shit thrown at me, you know, from across the street. Like, I just thought that shit was, it was bullying to me. It was bullying, and it felt nothing like what I understood there. Because I, I always was into researching stuff. So I'm like, all right, what's up, Fugazi? And I'll look up Minor Threat, and I'll find out what is what is this about? And I was like, this isn't, this, these are just fucking jock bullies who have now found something that they're attaching themselves to. It has nothing to do with any of that. There's no community here. There's no, this is just mean, just being mean for the sake of it. And then saying, oh, but I got the edge. Like, it's not, you're just being a dick and then saying that you're part of the dick club. That's it. Like, it's not, it's not fair. So I, that created a lot of hatred. And then through that, those kids kind of died off. The Courage Crew thing kind of died down in Cincinnati. But there was still a lot of residual, like, let's, fu- you know, fuck the, the makeup faggy band. Because that was it. We were the only one. Um, and this is before, you know, bands like Escape the Fate started getting really popular. Or bands like, um, you know, uh, Aiden or all these things. This is like just before that. Because they were popular in certain areas. But now we're out. They didn't. Um, our, this is before our scene kind of got all that stuff. So I was the sole band in that area that was doing anything like with the makeup or the, the hair or any kind of glam nature to it or any kind of, you know, doing covering misfit songs or whatever. So, um, that caused a lot of hatred and all those people stayed around long enough. And amazingly, I mean, we're talking about now it was 2011 was the first time we rolled through there again and they were there in full force. I mean, they were signs. Fuck you. In fact, like the makeup at warp tour. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. And they went through all that just to- for years. They waited for me to come back. And I always joke that some people get met with the ticker tape parade, And I just get people throwing wads of shit in the air when I get back, you know? And, um, we were prepared for that this year with Warped Tour. And it's, it's amazing what the success of the band has done and what the positivity that we have with a lot of people have done. And, um, I, you know, we, it was, it was raining. So we played the main stage. They moved it into the amphitheater and I was like, fuck now, all these people are going to fucking pack into the amphitheater. It's going to be nothing but a shit show. It's, I was, I never get nervous for shows, but I can, uh, Dusty, who is a production uh, assistant on Warp Tour was standing b- backstage with me with Kevin there. And I was about like, I was almost shaking. Like I was very nervous because I was afraid of what I'm very combative. I was afraid of what I was going to do. I didn't want to, I had to explain to Kevin. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want you to be upset with me, but I might get engaged in something today because it's, if people come at me, particularly here, like there's nothing more re-stimulating for me than anything. It's an old war, man. Yeah. So I'm shaking and everything and, um, go out on stage and I didn't realize how I couldn't see how well it was going. 
I was, and I, I, that's the only, only way I can say it is like, I literally couldn't, the whole amphitheater, by the way, is full and everyone is having the best time. Everyone knows all the songs. We're three songs in the set and I'm still talking to the audience like they hate me. Like I'm full on like aggressive, like, fuck you. yeah, like I'm that golden God speech level of like anger. And I'm, and then I start to like, something clicked in me where I was like, man, this is, and I actually apologized. I was like, wow, I'm sorry guys. Like I came out here on 10 because I expected something different and in my whole life. It's been this way. And just the word Cincinnati makes me feel this way. So I came out here expecting to have to fight my way and like very emotional. Like it was amazing for me. Um, and then I, I jumped down on the grid to bring the mic out to the fans and tore my whole hand open and I have a black leather glove on and it collects like probably a pint of blood in this glove. And I smack myself in the head on stage and then there's just blood everywhere. So now the audience is freaking out. I'm covered in blood and everyone's having, it was like this weird cathartic, like tribal experience. <laughs> and it's like, and then we did in the end, which is the song that I wrote about my grandfather and my mom is there filming it. And to see the amphitheater that I first saw kiss at when I was a little kid and I saw Aerosmith and Motley Crue and all these, you know, the big shed mm-hmm. bands, um, full of people. I mean, totally full singing in the end. Uh, was really cool. And that to me was, I was able to close a chapter in my life that I never would have been able to before. Um, it was awesome. It really was important to me. It was the biggest and most cathartic thing that could have happened because now I was able to go back home. Like I would have never done that. I was too angsty and too nervous to go back home years before. But after that show on Warped Tour, I wanted to go visit my parents and I wasn't afraid to go around. I didn't think I was going to have to defend myself. It's so funny as a kid, I never knew that you guys were located here. In Cleveland. I think you such, said that to me one time. Yeah, it would have been such a crazy revelation to me. Like I never, I think I figured it out once. I remember there was a mailing, there was like a little card that had like a mailing address on something. And I was like, what? It says Ohio on that. But then I, I think as a kid, I rationalized, I was like, maybe they just have like Ohio has like a, a like a place that they printed or something. I was like, there's no way this is based out of Ohio. You know what I mean? Like, cause as a kid, you don't realize like that there's other I didn't even know what Cleveland is, but I only been to Cleveland a few times, but it was like, to me, Ohio was this big. So the first, the first uh, time that you took the band outside of Cincinnati area, was there a Cleveland gig on that one? Did you do like Cleveland, no. Pittsburgh, Detroit, like that? Or did, um, you, or did you do like Toledo, not Sandusky? In, not until <laughs> Youngstown. I, not until I, yeah, I think it was always like weird places like that. Like Dayton would be the farthest in like, in terms of a real city, but it wasn't until 2009 when I had LA version of the band come back and do our first tour as that band that we played the first show we ever played was at Peabody's ah okay do you I I used to ask this early on in the series and I don't ask it because it was very few that musicians get it but I kind of wonder if you would but all this time touring you've toured the world right but United States do you remember that one day maybe it was a day off or maybe it was before the gig or after the gig or in traveling or something like that, where you just kind of felt like, wow, if there's anything that's like a slice of Americana, I just saw it or experienced it. Um, I don't even know if it was specifically that as much as the first time we ever toured in England. And it was the first day that we got to come back to the United States. I, and I've said this a million times, I've never had a greater appreciation. I never was growing up. I didn't, I wasn't unpatriotic. I didn't hate America, but I never was, so, you know, I didn't have the country pride that everybody else had. You know, I wasn't like the the flag flying, whatever. Toby Keith. Yeah, but it wasn't until I had ever experienced being out of this country and then getting to come back to America 
and having like we think we had a layover and you know it might have been Dallas Fort Worth which is kind of a <laughs> kind of a hub but just seeing like stuff again and food with salt in it and like you know seeing American people and American girls and all the things that I had, hadn't seen in so long was crazy like it was like it felt like that airport layover was like someone giving me just a minute of like you know, bliss. And, you know, cause it was just, it was amazing because not to say that I don't enjoy the rest of the world, but I was unprepared. And I, like, I think everybody is the first time you leave the country for how different things can be, especially when you're touring in a van, you know, in, in England and playing small places. Cause that shit can be a lot harder than doing it over here. It's not until you get to a certain level in other countries, it's a lot harder to tour. So our first time through as a support band in England, pl- touring in a van, playing in rooms that, you know, we're so small that we had to put the drum kit next to us again, but doing it in a capacity where you have none of the community. Because when you do that and your kids in America, you still have, you know, Del Taco and like all this stuff. <laughs> you know, you have your conveniences. And then you're on you're the road and you're, you know, you, you have, you know, now you have a cell phone that works, all that stuff. But regardless whether you have that kind of stuff, it's still, you have your conveniences. And when you don't have any of that and you're playing these tiny places and things are miserable and you're in a sprinter van with no oxygen in it, no windows, like... It's a real dark experience. So coming back to America for the first time, I fell in love with the U.S. And every time I've done it since, I love the United States. No matter how happy I am, I love touring abroad. I love England particularly. We have a great, uh, repu- uh, uh, I guess, rapport with in terms of the audience. I always love America more than anything when I come back home. Is there a country that you still haven't like synced in yet with? You're like, every, like you love it. You want to be a part of it. Like you want to just blend Germany. in. Germany. Yeah. Can't get it together there. Regardless of how well the shows go, I have some, and I always make the joke that I call all of uh, Europe Germany. <laughs> I go, oh, we're going back to Germany. They're like, Andy, there's a lot of countries that are right. Nope, German tour. That's all it is. Because <laughs> well, the first couple of times we rolled through there, they did not give a shit, like just couldn't connect. And regardless of how well we do over there, there's still something in me that just like, I'm cautious on stage. So yeah, every time I, uh, every time I go to, uh, Germany. <laughs> uh, I just, there's some connection stuff that I was never really to get. My, my, particularly in the early days of our shows and club days, I would take, we'd only played five songs. The rest was just me giving speeches, very opinionated thing. You know, <laughs> when we, we did a tour supporting the first tour we supported in the States, the only one that we ever got to do because nobody would take us on tour was, um, <laughs> the last from first to last tour they ever did. It was, mm. uh, sleeping with sirens, us, and then, that we were the bands that were treated like shit on the tour and nobody, but we were the people that were bringing all the people to the shows and then they'd all leave, but we were treated like babies and idiots. And, uh, except, except from first to last were nice guys, but the other bands on the tour, I won't mention them, but they were, have now not done so well or they are done in fact as bands. And, uh, anyway, which is sort of ironic, you know, considering the fact that me and Kellen have sort of done considerable right. amount in our career. Um, and me, we actually done Warped Tour. We're joking about that tour this summer, but, uh, we, we would play maybe a total of, of th- four songs and the rest is just me yelling opinions at people, you know, <laughs> just, I have some shit to say and I'm going to say it. And I, I didn't realize that that would only allow for me another five minutes to play music. And <laughs> Andy, we have to play some songs here. You can't just yell your opinions at people. Now we headline now, you know, I'll do, we'll do an hour and a half. And I, I, st- I don't talk as much as I used to back then. Cause I enjoy playing music, but at the time, it was just so much aggression I had to get out. It would be disingenuous now. I still occasionally go on my, my little rants, but stage at is the therapy. time, I needed to say it. You yep. know. Stage is therapy for a lot of singers. Fans get upset. Andy doesn't talk as much because I don't, I don't ever want to say something that I don't believe in, and I don't want it to become shtick. You know? Right. If I'm not feeling it, I don't want to say it. There are certain things 
that it's an unavoidable thing. You're doing it this night after night. You have, there's certain Groundhog's Day elements. I There are certain things that I say every single night because in my estimation, it's part of the show. One rolls into the next. If I say, you know, on this tour, before we do, we're doing a Misfits cover in the set. And before that, I, I say that it's October. I say that, you know, we all grow up loving Halloween, that, you know, being kids that are kind of weird looking, um, no like variations on the words. And then I say, this is a song by the ultimate Halloween band. And that if you come see three shows on the tour, you're going to hear me say something very similar to that every single night. I can't go completely off the cuff all the time because I do have, you know, a 50 minute set that I have to keep together. Um, but having said that in terms of long speeches and stuff, I don't like them to be, uh, you know, like pre kind of, cause that's, because like bands like Kiss and stuff, Paul Stanley always has like the speech to say that it's been practiced and auditioned. Sure, and but it's not for me. Well, Billy Joe has them, and yeah. you know I can't do it. I was one of the things that the first time I ever saw AFI changed me was just the aggression that they were like. I'd never seen people play like that on stage before. This is like the first Warped Tour I went to, two thousand one or something, and uh, I'd never seen them before. But I knew I loved their music. You know, from what I knew of it, I didn't know all their songs, but I knew enough in the set that it was enjoyable. But I'd never seen because I previously had only seen either old men, dinosaur, like classic rock bands who had shit blow up behind them but didn't move or anything, <laughs> or old man punk bands like you know Social Distortion or something, which you know not against them, but they were there was never a whole lot of stage movement there. So imagine you know right. uh, an older version of that. It's so like watching the members of AFI just destroy a small stage area and never stop moving. And Davey never says, he just hears the song name. And if I have something to say, and then just goes to the next one, that was life changing for me because I was like, Oh, I don't have to be like, I can just go up there and be genuine. And that's a whole of a lot better. That's a whole hell of a lot better than being this sort of statuesque, like preconceived person that's going to, you know, I think that's when I lost a lot of the, the rock star thing. Cause I, to me, rock star changed then because now it's like, um, being the, the Billy Idol style rock star is a lot different. And I, I would love to do that, but I don't, I don't know that I'll ever be able to do that hundred percent because I just have too many, um, I have too much interest in, in constantly reminding myself of what, where I came from or why I do this. What do you think if you had a, you know, obviously, you know, you've got to try and say this somehow with some humility because, but it's difficult because what do you think it is that your fans have latched onto you as a performer? What about you? you I'm think? good at it. I'm good on stage. I mean, I don't need to, I, I don't need too much humility. I'm a good, I'm a good front man. I would put my performance up against any one of my age bracket or the bands that perform today. Um, I'm not the best singer in the world. I, I sing well enough for our songs. I don't think it's any, you know, I'm not trying to, tell anybody that like someone like Kellen is a great singer. I mm-hmm. can never sing like him, but I can go on a stage and people want to pay attention to me because I'm good at it. Cause I spent a lot of time doing that and I know how to connect with an audience and I know how to right. connect with our audience. Um, it's genuine. I, when I smile on stage, it's not an act. I'm smiling cause I'm happy to be there and I, it, I get a kick out of it. Um, but I also know when I'm running around and making faces and shit, it's because that's the show that I want to put off. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people aren't aware of the show that they want to give. And I've always known that. And I've, I wasn't great at it always. I've gotten a lot better uh, through the years. The first time we had played a big stage, I was terrible. Like the first, Because we, we went from playing clubs to then we played Download Festival. And it's that's a whole different sure. form of showmanship. I was used to the stage is this big and I run from here to here to here to here. And I, I had to learn how to do a big stage and work a stage with pyro and all that. Now I can, I can kind of do any of it and I'm happy with it. Um, 
I don't need to have humility when it comes to knowing that I'm good at something. Do you think, um, uh, you know, that they say kind of in, in stage stuff, um, they say like Friday night crowds are the worst because the, the people that come see performances stuff are like they're tired. They've been all the work week and uh, Saturday night crowds are more up. They had all day rest. Have you noticed that with like concert crowds too? I never know what day of the week it is. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I don't. Our fans have been so cool for us personally, like as our band. Yeah. We've always, the things that are the, the conventions of what people say things are always go against what Blackfield Brides fans do. And the reason that we've even become successful in the first place is because of that audience. And it really is, you know, a lot of people say that and it's everything's for the fans. But this is a band that we couldn't even get shows. I mean, we, the whiskey wouldn't book us, uh, Viper Room, none of those. We had we had to play parking lots and 300 people would show up in a parking lot. That's why we ever started because people cared. Mm -hmm. We would come play shows and, you know, Peabody's had in their big room, they had someone that that was important at the time that I don't remember, but fell fell off the face immediately. But, you know, at the time they were very important. So we were in the little room and they had so many people spilling out of the little room that the the big room was almost filled with people trying to get into the the Pirates Cove area. Like it's always been that I can say, I can talk a big game because I know that our fans will back it up. Hmm. Nominate us for a fan voted award. We one year, we won all of your AP awards. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, you guys win a lot of awards if you're not at least nominated, but you win a lot of them. But what I'm saying is it's not because we have some magical abilities or that we're, it's because the fans have always cared. And I think that the connection that we have with them um, it's, it's important and strong. A lot of times when people have a younger audience, they either grow to resent them be, because of their youth or their whatever, or their, their interest in other stuff or, um, or they can never grow and, and the audience will lose interest. And I think the one thing that our people sometimes talk shit about the younger kids, particularly the younger set of our audience. And by the sure. way, now as we have grown as a band, our audience is broad a lot more there's i look out and it's not the way it used to be there's people there's you know 50 year old metalhead dudes just like there's people in their 20s just like there's younger kids but when we first started it was all predominantly younger kids and i give our audience credit for being smart they've grown with us our three records that we've released sound nothing like one another really Mm -hmm. stylistically i'm you know there's it's the members of the band doing it but we're we've been able to put out the kind of music that we want to and our audience has grown we've sold more records every time we've gotten a bigger audience every time as opposed to you know, some audiences where if a band changes something slightly, they're alienating the audience. Sure. But we've given our fans the credit of saying, you guys want this, stay with this. And they have. How do you think you guys have, like you said, you guys have been able to do this, especially with like the revolver world and, and the metal world a lot. You guys have been able to kind of go over to the rock on the range crowd mm-hmm. pretty easily, easily, but not a lot of bands get to be able to do that. They kind of get pigeonholed in and they kind of get stuck there. And then when they do try it and broaden out and they can't do it, Sometimes they're pushed back by those outside uh, the the forces that are in that genre. So we see this a lot with um, you'll see bands kind of come out of the Warped Tour crowd or the Hot Topic crowd or whatever AP crowd, and they'll try and go over into Pitchfork world, mm-hmm. try and go over to Spin world, to try and go over to AV Club world to be start to be taken broaden it out right. and those people go like what you're a hot topic band yeah. like and they dismiss them so how do you think for you guys were you able to do that i've like, never considered what those different audiences are i've never once thought oh i wonder if this will alienate the revolver audience if we do i've always just saw it as 
if if we're a rock and roll band, I would like all forms of rock and roll people to pay attention. And if they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. Uh, to be honest with you, people, there is, and it's been written in, in AP before that Black mm-hmm. Brides is trying to appeal to a more rock on the range audience. I don't know what the hell that means because to <laughs> me, a rock on the range audience, I look out and still see three fourths of the audience of the people that are coming to our shows mm-hmm. when we were on the AP tour. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't, we've always been the kind of band that I don't think people know how to pigeonhole us. And there's a lot of bands and I know I can think of, you know, I'm not going to say them, but I can think of specific examples of bands that were on the cover of AP magazine mm-hmm. and were headlining one tour and then said, okay, well we don't need that anymore. Right. We're going to be, you know, we're never going to go back to that world. We're going to do this thing. And then, you know, like a year later now they're opening on a, you know, first of five for Papa Roach or whatever. And they're not, they never, I've never, I don't think we ever want to make a move in any direction. I just want to keep, people want to pay attention. I'd love that. I want to keep making the music that I make. I don't want to, make a shift to a specific form of media or a specific audience because I, if I personally don't care about that, because I'll, I would go and see, um, a band like, you know, bullet for my Valentine as much as I would go and see a band like, you know, I don't know, Aiden or something, you know what I mean? Like, and those are obviously in terms of appeal, very different, but they've toured together in the past. And, um, I think that there are certainly ways of crossing all that stuff. I don't, I, I'm not saying we're, you know, going to be the band that's going to cross all the things, but I just, I think it's just not caring about directing your audience. I don't want to tell them what to do. I don't want to tell people what they should like, because that's what has been done to me my whole life. And I've always been told, well, you, you wear those tight pants. You probably like this. Right. And I don't particularly, you know, well, it's, it is something to be said that I think humans like to be able to categorize things because it makes it easier for them to understand it We're faster. categorized as the makeup band that everybody hates by a lot of people. And then by other people, we're categorized as the band that helps people. And then we're categorized. But we're always, we're obviously very divisive. But no one really knows why they, they hate us until, like, there's there's only, I would say that of the people who really dislike Blackfell Brides, 5% of them have ever listened to the music or know anything other than the press shot for Set the World on Fire. It's true, and it's amazing to me. And I'm not saying that our music is infallible. You could easily listen to our songs and dislike it, um, but I don't think people even take the time to do that, which is the, the most fascinating thing about this band, is that for some people, we matter so much, and we can be in the top five consistently on active rock sure. radio now, and we can, number one song on Slacker Radio for weeks and weeks and weeks, and people that don't even know that they like our songs like our songs, and then they hear the name or they see that set the world on fire picture of us with the hair and the studs and everything, and they're like, that's the faggy makeup band, and they know nothing about it. When you hear sentences like, bands like Black Veil Brides and Blood on the Dance Floor, what, what do you mean by that, bands like that? I'd love to know what someone means by that. And to me, it goes, I see a young kid that has a Blackfield Bride shirt on and a Blood on the Dance Floor bracelet, and that kid likes it because they like the aesthetic. I don't know anything about Blood on the Dance Floor, but I know I've heard what I've heard. They are not musically anything like this band. The dude had hair. He has hair that kind of looked like my old hair. That's really the only thing I can <laughs> add to that. They wear makeup. I don't think that there's any other, but it's, it's a thing where you can draw that comparison immediately and go, I don't like those things. So you would never bother to listen to one or the other. And there are some people... Again, not to, to try to put my band above another, but if you might like the, uh, you might hate the heavy metal stuff. You might have heard our music and you might like the kind of um, electronic stuff that some of these other bands do. You are not allowing yourself the opportunity to find any of that if you immediately lump it in. But people get mad at aesthetics. They go, oh, fans of Black Veil Brides. They, because, you know, 
they don't, they only like, and, and Ronnie and I were talking about this. They only like something that's visual. And I go, when you right. were 12, did you like the Ninja Turtles because of their genius message and meeting? Or did you like the way they looked and you wore the shirt and you had the action figures? Right. It doesn't bother me if a young kid finds Blackville Brides and likes us. And then they also like something that I particularly don't like. I don't listen to Blood on the Dance Wars music, but I'm not going to get mad at a kid who likes both of those things because they might aesthetically, that might be something that's interesting to them. And I think it's ridiculous when either fans of music or musicians themselves have such high and mighty opinions on things that they they draw that distinction on their own. That's not up to them. Do you feel like sometimes the pressure's on too much to be worrying about the aesthetics? Does it kind of bum you out as a songwriter? And um, No. And I think you and I talked about this when I was younger, too. Uh, I've just never, I've never paid much mind to it. I always knew that the band would evolve. I knew that we wouldn't be looking the same or doing the same thing forever because I get bored with that. I, I can't keep my, like hair the same color. I tried to go back to my natural color for work. I I can't do anything that long. I have to come up with a new thing. I'm already drawing what I think the band should do next and what the concept for, like, I can't, I get to, so when people saw the band, and by the way, that time period that we looked that way, the Set the World on Fire era that everyone kind of attaches, the Fallen Angels video, that was actually a shorter time period than even the way that the band has currently looked. Right. But that was such a, a distinctive image and it was so different than what else was happening that became the all-encompassing image for the band. Well, it's the first impression. Right. And that's fine with me because yeah. I still stand behind that. People go, oh, do you, isn't it ridiculous that you used to... And no, I for what that was, that was, the, that was the style for what that band was. And I'm happy that that existed because I don't think... I don't think without that, there would have been that foot in the door to shock people and wake people up and go, what the hell is this? A lot of people saw that and they did listen to music because of it. And a lot of people saw that and they didn't. I could, I could give a shit either way, really. I, I, people saw it and that's fine with me. I have never been in the business of being interested in trying to, um, I'm not Marilyn Manson. I don't want to offend people's moral, whatever. But if someone sees an image of the band and they're so interested in it, it could affect me positively. They could go, what the hell is that? And then they hear a song that I wrote and they go, wow, that's cool. Inversely, that could be that they, for the rest of their lives, hate us and they make fan pages about hating us or whatever on Facebook. <laughs> right. And sadly, it's, you've met a lot of people and I'm sure you've met a lot of idols. Is there any idol you haven't met yet? Um, uh, Paul Stanley. I've never, and then purposely. Uh, really? He's, to me, in my estimation, I think Paul Stanley is the is the most important driving force behind Kiss, and I think most people that really look at the what the band is, Gene has always kind of been the you know he's the the media guy and everything. And I and the time that I ever met Gene Simmons was with cameras on him anyway, so I don't really know what oh, he's right. like. So you don't know you what know, he's I doing. met him for his show, and it was me and the band, and oh, it's good to see it coming back and whatever. So I have no idea what he's really like, and I don't care to. Um, some people I've met have been disappointing, and some people have been great. Uh, the people that are now like Sebastian Bach and Dee Snyder and are, are uh, friends and people that get, give me advice and Nikki Six as well. You know, we started out with kind of an interesting relationship, but it's developed into something where now he and I text on a regular basis. I go in and do his radio show all the time and we're, we're friends now. Um, it's, it's really cool in that regard. Uh, I've, I, ne- I, I, I put off meeting Danzig until this year. I never wanted, I had mutual friends and everything. I was like, I never want to meet him. I don't care. I've heard the stories, but thank God for the way that I met him this year was through the golden gods. I had, I was the guy who I don't think that if he was going to respect anyone in that room, there was nothing that could have happened. That was more like punk rock to his ideas than me screaming at an entire audience full of people waving a (laughs) statue at them. So that was like, I got to meet that kid. So that's the way I got to meet him. And he was, Oh, you're the fuck you guy. You know, (laughs) If you're going to meet one of your yeah, idols, so that's nice. the way to yeah. meet him. He and Doyle, they were very, yeah, took pictures and 
whatever. And that was fun. Cause I had uh, Nick from uh, Aiden who had never met any of them. And obviously Aiden was hugely influenced by the misfits and everything. And I brought him along and my bass player and we took pictures with Doyle and it was awesome. You know, uh, you, like you said, you've, you know, you've got friends now that he's some of these people that were your idols and these people are iconic. Uh, Will you know. wasn't necessarily an idol to me, but I, well, I wasn't thinking, well, I was thinking like, no, but I'm, no, I'm saying in my head, I was just thinking, um, he wasn't, I didn't really know anything of Aiden. Um, but William Control, I found. And that's sort of the way that I discovered him. A friend of mine who was this girl who was kind of talking to him at the time. And like, she was just kind of a band girl. She was like, oh, you know, doing the same and whatever. And she sends me, this is right when the William Control album comes out. She was like, I know you love like, you know, New Order and Sisters of Mercy and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, I think this would be right up your alley. And so she sent it to me and I sent him a message on MySpace. I didn't, I knew of Aiden, but I didn't know anything about him. Um, I knew I didn't like them. Like, and I've told him this before. I knew that the only reason I knew I didn't like him is because I was of the age where I hated everything. And it, he could have been the big, and Will, I and knowing Will, he'd probably respect you for that. Uh, yeah, that. but I didn't, yeah. I, and also it wasn't, it was like the things that he, he wound up becoming disillusioned with were the things that I didn't like his band for the reasons that he stopped. Like, and it's unfair to say, but at the time, like he was that kind of, you know, I think Aiden became a lot better later in their career because I think like a record like Knives, if I would have heard that as a kid, mm. that would have been my fucking favorite band. But right. I don't, I think like a lot of bands like us, if you listen to We Stitch These Wounds and that's your first impression, I think that you probably wouldn't understand where the band has gone in the same regard. I only heard maybe in passing Aiden's first song and that wasn't where they, what they were going to become. So I just didn't right. like it, whatever. I didn't wrote it off. So I, I listened to the uh, William Control record and I sent him a message on MySpace. I just go, hey man, you know, I, I'm really excited to see something like this happening. You know, I, I, I know I, I've heard of your, your previous band before. Um, you know, I'm kind of an upstart band called Blackfield Brides. If you ever see us around, you know, be nice to, to have a conversation with you. You know, I, I really, you know, I kind of get the influences. I was like, you know, Christian death and all the stuff that I get, I get where you're coming from. Uh, nice to see it happening. And he was, he wrote me back like 10 minutes. I freaked out that some fucking like what looked like my space, like whatever scene kid, whatever he's thinking in his head writes back and it's writing him a message about new order, or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so he was like, Whoa. And from that moment on, he became one of the only people who was an advocate to me. Uh, he and uh, Mick Morris from 18 visions were like the two people who were already successful in some capacity that when I was coming up would tell people like, no, this band is great. And this kid's got something. And if it wasn't for particularly, you know, uh, for Will, Will really did, he would, he would fucking fight for me in the early days. Like he was willing to go to bat. I mean, literally we got into fights with bands and together beat the shit out of bands, like <laughs> because of people making fun of the makeup that we wore and stuff. Cause wow. I think he took us as when he was starting Aiden, the shit that he got, he didn't want another band to have to get that. Cause you know, in a way he kind of he didn't want to do that anymore. So he kind of gave up on what Aiden was, you know, he made the right. conviction record and he kind of did stop with the makeup and everything. And he wanted to move past that. And I think he almost saw Blackville as a second chance to kind of do that stuff and be involved in that. And if it wasn't for him in the early days, I don't, he was really a huge um, person that shaped my, my career as, as an artist and a musician. And I, I, I mean, I, I always tell him that, you know, and to this day, he, I see him all the time. I was just at his house. I did a, I did a, a voiceover cause he was the dude on my last record. So now I'm the voiceover guy on his new record. He just did. <laughs> Which, do you, what, what's the best piece, piece of advice you've gotten from any of these guys? The best piece of advice that Will gave me recently was uh, don't, <laughs> so funny. I told him, I was like, you know, I've been really thinking about 
musically, I've been writing some different stuff. You know, I, I got together with Ronnie recently and we did some stuff and just different kinds of music that I had never gotten to write before. And I was just thinking like, I was just sitting, you know, just me and Will talking as friends. And I'm like, you know, I, I really want to get into writing different kinds of music. And he just, he was like, don't fuck up Black Veil Brides. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, whatever you do, write whatever you want. Don't write music that's going to fuck up your band. He's like, oh, that's what I did. And I, I lost a lot. I want to, don't want to see that happen to you. And I, it wasn't my intention, but I never really thought about it that way. And I guess I always have to keep it in the back of my head that I don't want to ruin whatever my band's dynamic is because I want to be what I want to be. And that, but having said that, I think that I can walk that line creatively where I can still do what I want to, because I always have, but separate it and do it kind of in my own way. So you are a very forward thinker. You're a planner. You're definitely your businessman. You're a planner. Uh, one, you know, one British magazine once called me a cold-hearted businessman. Cold-hearted businessman. Okay. Well, let me know. When Which I thought was funny. I'm waiting for the layoffs. Right. Um, so, you know, we could talk about what's next year, but knowing how you operate, what is your idea of five years from now? Oh, I don't do the short term. I've never have. I, I hate. Well, I'm thinking short term. Five years is in this day and age, technology wise, is long term. Can't do it, man. Can't do All it. All right, so we'll go. We'll go mid. Let's go. 15. Let's go next. I never like to put time frames. Okay. All What's right. Next. The next phase. Um, I'm coming up with it right now. I have ideas. Uh, I want to take a little bit of time. I think we've put out a record consistently every year for the last three years. Um, not to say that I don't want to do that again, but I think we the. Wretched Divine was a chance to have a little bit more time to write, but it still was a pretty like get in there, do the record and then release it and go on tour. Like for a concept record, we didn't have a whole lot of time. Um, I want to just start writing. You know, I want to, me and Feldy talk about writing together. Always. We do little stuff. We send stuff back and forth. Um, find, you know, who's going to produce it. Who's going to do like all the stuff that, uh, I just, the next steps in the band are, are what's really interesting to me. And, and I want to take some time to really look at that. We never have. Having said that, I won't do what some of my favorite bands did to me growing up, which is take four years, grow a beard, sit in a tr like sit with my uh, my statues and shiny <laughs> records, and feel great about myself and not make another record because I think that that's first of all I want to make more music while I can, and I want to make more music for fans while they want it, and those two things combined, I don't see like as much as I, I'm sitting here telling you now that I want to take time, I'm probably not going to like I'd love to do it, but I'm too. I want to just do things. I want to make records. I want Blackfield Brides to have a new record. I was teasing my buddy Danny that in the time that they put out one more record, I put out three just because my mind is always working. So, like, <laughs> you you have a lot of friends here that are musicians, obviously, and especially the younger ones uh, that we all know, and the pressure on them to be constantly on social media and being constantly like got to keep it going got to keep the content got to keep the content you ever kind of feel that pressure i mean you're a pretty good instagrammer you don't you don't seem to like you don't seem to be adverse to it no i like it so uh i but, enjoy it man but is there's there no better place for vanity than just just taking a picture of myself no um <laughs> um i i'm not a uh, crazy social media guy uh I, me and juliet always have like little little uh it's not it's not fights but little teasing sessions because she will talk about everything we do in a day and i always tease her i'm like babe i'm going to the bathroom you want to you want to tweet about it or just let the fans know that because my thing is and she's actually uh i think that since our relationship is because she previously was always like with her fans before she and i got together she was always known with her fans of being super open and i think that I, to her credit 
she knows that I'm a much more private person and she, to her credit for our relationship, has always been very conscious of that and doesn't um, tweet out all this stuff, which I think to her fans, some of them might be, that were automatic love letter fans, they're, they're a little upset that she isn't so open anymore. But um, one of the things that, it's a kind of an unspoken thing, she knows that in my life, I have been a online media figure since I was 15 and I like to have something and I don't hide anything from the fans. There's no secrets that, you know, but, um, if I sit down with a bagel and watch Netflix, like I don't need everyone to know that they get enough. And I didn't learn that distinction until it was the first time we ever did a major headlining tour. And my mom was at the show and she said that one of the things that was upsetting her was that people kept writing her. She didn't know why it upset her, but people kept writing her saying, do you have any pictures of Andy when he was a baby? And she said, that she has no problem with people seeing photos, but in a sense, she wanted to say like, well, no, that's, you have him now. Like you get him every day. You get the pictures. Like I, that's, you don't get to know everything about when he was a kid. That's, you know, like that's mine. And I told that, and that's sort of an abiding belief that I have in my life and I have in my relationship and everything. Like I always try to have the, you get this and I get this. You get to have a lot of my life as my, as my audience that deserves it, that they've given me a career in the first place. As long as you let me have a few things and you don't try to trample on that, just let me have some stuff for my life. Let me and you know, the, the lady in my life, let me let, let us watch a movie without telling you about it. And don't get mad at me for that because I promise you I'll give you photos and everything else. And I think our audience has been really good about that. There are some bands who um, don't give their audience anything. And then inversely, there's some bands that it's like they can't fucking shut up like all day, everything. <laughs> And I think, I like to think that we fall somewhere in between. You know, I think that we're the the kind of group that the fans will give us our space. And also in some ways, if I don't tweet for a couple of days, they invent that I have lung cancer. And then, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but I think it's, it's a little, it's Not a little to bit laugh of a about lung part. cancer, but yes. Yeah. I know that's probably the biggest complaint I've ever heard from a lot of musicians today is that the fans won't let them shut off, but it's okay. It, it's like it's like being elected to be president and then complaining about wearing a tie. If you're lucky enough to get what you want, you should be able to deal with the accoutrements of that. And to me, if I'm lucky enough to be this guy who gets to go on stage and sell records and live the dream that I wanted to live my whole life, being like, hey, what's up, guys, shouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And it doesn't bother me. There are obviously funny things about it. Like I said, the fact that if I forget to do it, someone's like, oh, he's dead. But... <laughs> Right. You know, and that's, rehab. Yeah, right. but you know, but if I if 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 I'm honest, I like talking to the kids. I, those people, regardless of whether they're 65 years old or six years old, in some capacity, can relate to me. There's the reason that they're following me is they either like my music or they have an aesthetic reason for liking me. There's something about them that is is going to be my friend or be kind to me, and that's there's no reason that I wouldn't want to talk to those people. So, I, w- I want to ask this question, and then I want to do the lightning round. And then we'll wrap this up. Okay. So, but, and this does get talked about in the story, but I want to ask you this in person because I think just in, in uh, just audio and stuff like that, it'll make, it, it'll probably may even a different answer, but, um, you know, the story that we're doing with you is basically, you know, like how you became this person, mm-hmm. how you got from Cincinnati to where you're at. Yeah. Um, so is there one thing that Andy of now would go back and say to that kid back then? about life? Um, I think, and, I, and I, I did touch on it a little bit in the piece, um, that the only thing that I really 
and, and I, we talked about it a little bit before today as well. Um, there, there are certain parts of my lack of uh, social skill or interest that I think didn't serve me super well in the, in the early days of me being in Los Angeles, not even when I was younger, but when I first got to LA, um, I think I would have, I would have done well to make some more friends or to try to be a little bit less, uh, you know, this way. It's not to say that now, fortunately, I've been, a, I've been in a situation where I have a bunch of very close friends and I have a world of people that, that are around me and close to me and I can contact and But that's something that happened only in the last like five years that I really got a close friend group because in the early years of me being in LA, it was just what I have to do this now. And so that's maybe the only thing that I would, I would like to, you know, I can't change anything, but maybe just be sure. like, Hey, maybe lighten up a little bit and, and have some friends every once in a while. Like you don't, I promise you that if you just go hang out tonight, you're not going to lose everything. Like it's all going to, you know, but who knows, who knows what would happen. Okay. Um, so before I go into this lightning round, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I'm excited about the lightning. Bring them the lightning. Okay, the lightning round. All right, here we go. So these are basically, these are what I call the Wikipedia questions. Oh, good. So these are the, these are the ones that hopefully you won't get asked again. Okay. So we just get them out of the way. All right. So, but some of these you probably have been asked 40 million times. So we're just going to start off at the top. Uh, favorite color? Uh, crimson. Most unique answer I've heard yet. Favorite movie? Uh... I'm not good at this lightning round thing. I'm too, I think too much. I can't say it off the cover. I have to say a bunch of stuff about it. Uh, well, don't be Hollywood. It's like you're gonna afraid you're going to offend somebody. That you no, know. I'm not going to offend anybody. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely trying to think what's the movie I like to watch the most. Um, something that never gets old. How about you're sick with the flu and it's the one you won't get mad at? See, see that's hard. Like, oh, <laughs> it could go in so many different directions. All right, here you go. Basic. One that I never, I, I always enjoy watching every time. Seven. Every awesome. Time. Every time. That is actually one of the few. The same thing with me. All right. Favorite place to recharge. So I'm going to give you some spots. Okay. Oceans, mountains, uh, grasslands, prairie lands, stuff like that. Desert, forests, suburbia, or cities? Probably suburbia. Really? Yeah. I lived in the city in, in LA for a while and I went nuts. And I, we moved to uh, to Studio City, and I I love nothing more the fact that then like there's a school and there's you know people and I can walk to a gas station and I can walk to a restaurant and like I love that. I don't know why I love that. That's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> favorite? Well, we kind of already said favorite junk food. Uh, I like York peppermint patties or Junior Mints. Or Junior Mints. That's that's okay. That's awesome. Uh, favorite old standard. Like Rat Pack song. Yeah, yeah. Um, geez. Well, cause my, there's like, see, that's a, that's a tough one too. Cause I got family stuff. Can I just, can I just say this? It's not one song specifically, but something that will always make me feel very comfortable because of a familial thing is anything Lawrence Welk soundtrack. All right, let me explain. My grandfather, who was one of my best friends in the world, the way that I even found out about music before I knew anything was in performers was watching Lawrence Welk with him all the time. So any of those weird old, like, you know, Conway Twitty kind of songs, sure. they're not necessarily the, the, the things we'd think of, but like that kind of bubblegum version of standards, like that's to me, like that, that's the equivalent of like someone rubbing your back and I'm like, it's very relaxing for me. If people don't know who Lawrence Welk was, you got to think of the Saturday Night Live sketch with Kristen Wiig. And right. With it, the little hands. Yeah, right. That's yeah. basically all taken off of Lawrence Welk. And the show wasn't that ridiculous. It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, it deba- because yeah, I always used to watch a show and go like, I really want to know what that person's like off camera. They're probably not. Did you ever watch that? Well, cause 
you could have known they every once in a while PBS would run where are they nows like a oh, version really? on and they would it was all the most fake like crazy makeup like we're doing great and then they would cut to like Lawrence who's just in the grave like right exactly yeah <laughs> he was Canadian I think he was some kind of something he was he, he was really, some kind of wonderful huh? he was he was <laughs> favorite time period in American history I like, like that you had to clarify who Lawrence was it didn't even occur to me that people wouldn't know <laughs> I think it's probably good that you did there's that there's so many people that don't even know who the Smiths are watching this so uh, you, I, I've, just, right. I've just it's my age favorite time period in American history if you could live in any time period oh shit uh, well I would say it would, it would be hard for me to pass up like late 70s uh, just because of the I, I there's so much that I would have liked to have seen you know in terms sure. of the early punk movement and um, classic rock sort of the really shitty classic rock was dying and like right. then there was disco which is exciting for people I'm not a disco fan but it was an exciting time for music and then because then early 80s you had new really fresh stuff come in and that would have been awesome sure favorite stiff drink stiff drink I, I, you know I'm just I, I'm a general you know uh, Jack and Coke kind of guy but my, my favorite drink of all time it's not a stiff drink it's a very sippable drink and we have tattoos dedicated to it is the uh, Seagram's whiskey and Mountain Dew it's called a Sea Dew and a lot of fa- our fans know that I've actually seen fans get Sea Dew tattoos that we the same ones we have as a band and but that's not a stiff drink that's like a so I like like a uh, a double triple whiskey with a little splash of, of Coke because I, I don't I'm not the like scotch guy, man. I like a little bit of sweetness to my alcohol. Yeah, I'm the same way. Right, right. Well, now people know what to get you. Favorite TV series? <laughs> of all time? Yeah. You know, it's really, I didn't know this until this year, but I really got to say that there's, maybe it's not my favorite. Um, it's a two-part answer. The thing that is like a warm blanket wrapping its arms around me is uh, The Office. Okay. And I can't. And U.S.? Both, because okay. uh, I started with the the UK version. I hated the US one when it first came out. Because again, right? Pretend, how can you? Uh, right. Uh, how can you get better than Ricky Gervais? Right, right. and always hating anything that everybody gets to know about. Right. Um, <laughs> the immediacy of it. Yeah. But then I, I grew to love it. But then uh, and that's the one that'll always make me happy. But in terms of, I can't. I can't deny that Breaking Bad, in my estimation, is the best television show, uh, right. Probably ever. I mean, it's it's incredible, really. And uh, I'm not like a mega, I don't own shirts or whatever, you know, like there's mega fans of the series, but sure. I can't deny that that's like, it's incredible. It was really well done. Um, a favorite item of clothing you'd wear every day if you could get away with it? Well, I already do. Um, I wear pretty much the same thing. I mean, I'm wearing this thing today, this jacket today, but normally it's the biker jacket with the black wife beater and black pants. I've been wearing these pants for about two weeks. I I, I don't really wash. Why do you need to wash pants? I Febreze them. It's fine. It's I'm on tour right now, people. It's okay. It's you can the- excuse my weirdness about like cleanliness on tour. Most people on tour don't even bathe, so it's body spray and you're done. I do. I take care of the bathing. That's I try it. to. Favorite club to play in, not to get you in trouble. Club. Um, when you see it on the when you see it on the list for this tour, you're like, oh yes. Uh, it really was for a long time. It was Peabody's. I always enjoyed playing there because mm. just with the the memories and the audience. For some reason, Cleveland was always really connected with us. Um. I I love uh, West West Hollywood House of Blues just because it's always a party and it's always like a homecoming. Sure. So, yeah, that's all I would say. Favorite song you don't get to perform enough because it just doesn't fit the set or... A song called Resurrect the Sun from our latest record that we did on our headline tour to support the record, but it's it's a song that you can only do if you have an hour and a half set. Like it's, And even then, it doesn't always fit. Contextually, it's a little different, so... Um, but I'd love to do a song called Lost It All, which we had on the last record as well, which um, it's kind of a big, epic kind of queen 
thing happening. There's trumpets and my Juliet Sims sang on the song. And it's, it's a beautiful song, but I don't, I, it's one of those things that I would only ever want to do it if we could do it perfectly. And it's, it would be a very hard song to pull off. Tour bus, bunk, top, middle, lower. Middle left. Only because I used to be top bunk and then I smashed every rib on the side of my body in 2011 and I had to sleep in the tour manager's bunk, which is always uh, middle right with the fucking phone in it because I couldn't sleep on the side of my body and it was the only thing I could get into. I couldn't go too low, couldn't go too high because of the bones. And then I just loved it, but I hated the phone. So now I, I just moved to the other side. I've been on that side of the bus for years now. Is, do you have a system set up in your bunk? Uh, like somebody I knew recently, they actually went out and got a, a widescreen mini TV. And I don't do any of that. Jinx does that. Jinx has an insane, like my rhythm guitar player. It's always a whole, he has a whole studio, but he does it on a ceiling. <laughs> no, I'm serious. He has a computer upside down that he's adjusted the monitor. So it's upside down. He's got a full uh, Mac uh, Pro Tools rig with, he's got keyboards. He's got little MIDI uh, string thing on the, where he can play as he plays violin. He's got it all on the ceiling. So he lays and makes music like this. It's, it's amazing. Um, when on warp tour, uh, Julia did the second half of warp tour with us and I wanted it. It's the only time I've ever decorated my bunk. I wanted her to feel comfortable cause she was going to be, so I bought a bunch of like, you know, fluffy pillows and stuff. And, you know, <laughs> but now, right now I'm, I'm completely stuck. Whatever was already in the bus when I got there. That's what, <laughs> can't be bothered. Uh, favorite time of year. You're in LA now, so it's a little bit different, but I, I, I mean, I, I wish that we had more of a fall, but this really is my favorite time of the year. I like the weather. I like it being the way that it is today is like my favorite temperature and, and feeling outside. Uh, favorite piece of rock and roll memorabilia that you own, like that seven inch or that could, that autograph or anything. Oh God, there's a, I think it's the sweetest thing that I've ever gotten. And it's not even the thing that's worth the most. It's, um, the first year that Juliet and I were dating, she bought me my favorite uh, uh, Social D record, like a nice copy of that, and my favorite Bruce Springsteen record. And nice, I mean, they're not vintage. They're not, they're just, it was just like, at that point, we didn't know that much about each other. And it was just like, it was the nicest. And I have it, it was That's very awesome. sweet that she cared that much about. Not the stuff that everybody knows about me. She didn't buy me a Motley Crue record or something, is what I'm <laughs> saying. Like, it was really the things that meant a lot to me. So that, that's, I, I care about that. Well, name your holy shit show, which is the one where you walk out on stage and you're blown away. Mm. Um, we've played bigger shows and bigger headline shows and everything since then. But the first time we headlined London, uh, we have since sold out Brixton Academy. Like we've done the things that, you know, you, you want to do when you're a little kid, but, and those were amazing. And that was holy shit. But in terms of the first time I ever got to see, it was Shepherd's Bush Empire, which is a smaller venue than uh, Brixton Academy. But it was the first time we ever had line London. And it was what to me was nine, nine million people. Like, I think the capacity was like 3,500 or something, but it seemed like forever like and there was balconies and it's like a beautiful theater and there are posters that David Bowie had played there and everything and it was just like I feel like we sounded great like it just it was it was an amazing show and again it's not as if that's been the biggest show we've ever played but from I always remember that as being a moment where I walked out on stage and, and everything went right for me in that show like I sang great like things were it was good are you really critical of on this show when you're yeah. when you're like you're like hyped? we all are we never like it's yeah. very rare that we go back to the bus and say that we had a good show we go back and like hate every show that we've ever done <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, it's, 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 un, it's unfortunate because we criticize any show that, that the fans see of us on the road and they, they enjoyed it. We enjoyed being there with them, but as soon as we're off the stage, we're talking about all the shit that went wrong all the time. Um, I'm going to make this one up on the spot, but name, name the thing that you hate when industry people say to you backstage. 
Um, they all have. We all have ours. A thing, yeah. We, 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 there's a series of them, that, and sometimes I found maybe that. Oh no! I, it's honestly for me. I think most people are avoid it now, but I hate when people tell me their career advice for me more than anything. That's <laughs> and I I hate it. I hate it because it's. I hate when people have an opinion that in my estimation is not based on all the things that I've been through. And it's not, it's been, it's, it's, it's something that has been easier for me to understand over the years, but particularly when I was younger and people would give me advice, I was not ready to hear it, nor was I interested. And that mm-hmm. was always like, I always felt really inappropriate that people would come backstage and tell me what they thought I should be doing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, we'll have a good show. <laughs> Glad you could let me know what you think of me. But like now now I understand it. I mean, fortunately, it's weird because now at the point that I would get it, people don't do it anymore. But when I was young, I was just sort of, like I said before, I just didn't, I was not ready to hear what anybody else had to say. I wanted this to be the thing that I wanted to do. Sure. And at almost at the risk of burning relationships with people and everything else, I just didn't, it was this. So I think when people would come backstage and be like, you know, whether it's a booking agent, whoever, they'd be like, you know, I think you should do next. Like, I think that it would be really cool if you shot a na na and then you went and you, what if you wore this thing or did that? And I was just like, you don't get, I'm, I think I only, I only, I have thoughts, which is ridiculous. But at the time hated it. Time you almost died on the road touring. Oh, so many. Um, let's just say this. I don't know if I almost died, but the most fear I ever had in my heart and it was the smallest injury I ever got. I uh, fractured my skull well, there's two things. One is an actual death thing. And then this one is just a fear thing because of where I was. Fractured my skull from here to here in Luxembourg. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about Luxembourg, but you could fit most of Luxembourg into the Cleveland House of Blues in terms of population. And <laughs> tax rates probably really high. Yeah. Well, we were playing, we were playing a show and it was, uh, the venue capacity was 3,500 or something. And the promoter's like, you have to understand there's not going to be a lot of people here tonight. And we're like, why? And he goes, because all of our country would have to be here for that. Like, so if you get like 300 people here, like it's awesome for us. Like our return on this is going to be awesome. So there was, yeah, like 350 people and they were through the roof. This is amazing. In a 3,500 capacity club does not look good. And we were like, well, so I go out there and I'm being reckless on stage. I roll underneath the drum riser and try to get myself back up, smash my skull. Now, that's, I've broken a lot on whatever, but I tried to go to a hospital and there is nothing scarier than the hospital in Luxembourg <laughs> for an American. They don't speak English. It's a room this big. They're trying to give the needles and shit. I have a broken face. Like there's, I don't know a lot about medicine. Cursory knowledge tells me that they, I don't need to be drinking weird viscous liquids and being stabbed in the arm. Like, I don't think that's what I need for this. So that was frightening the most realistic like death experience where the only time in my life that I ever said I'm going to die right now or had to come to terms with the fact that I might die right now. Um, a couple years ago, we went to Japan for the first time and we were in sound check and the whole time we had been in Japan, there were tremors, you know, little earthquakes and everybody in Japan wants to make fun of us because we're, you know, we're California guys who know that earthquakes can go real bad, but we've not experienced that level of them. So we're like, you know, bracing ourselves because we're thinking Northridge or whatever. Right. Sure. Um, and we're in soundcheck and we're playing in, uh, in Tokyo and all of a sudden crack and the whole room starts to go like this. And you see the eyes of the guy who's been laughing at us go, Oh shit. Says something in in Japanese, starts yelling at everybody. They get us. They say, you get out of here, evacuate. Now the room doesn't collapse entirely, but there's a kink in the ceiling and the whole thing's shaking. I'm talking like speakers are swinging around and we're freaking out. We get up, it's an underground venue. So we get up, go up the steps and we get on the street and there is, there is an H&M building and a Forever 21 
and they are across the street and I'm I want to say I'm I'm no more than the distance of an average road two lane two lane road with a sidewalk on either side I'm on the other sidewalk and the ground smashes and H&M does this tips and touches the Forever 21 building and then goes back and that was like and then the whole ground splits and then the and like when I saw a giant building bend and touch another building and then snap back like I was like well this could be it and so that was the uh the 8.9 uh, earthquake that then followed, the tsunami followed, and we were there during all that. Um, so we were quarantined during the, the first days of the tsunami until we could leave. Like, it was insane. Even when we got to the airport, um, it was still so dangerous. We had video of us getting to the airport, and they were only letting, like, three flights out back to the States a day because the whole airport is still doing this, and there's stacked to the ceiling. People have sleeping bags and emergency gear, and that was the scariest thing in my life. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That was rough. Wow. Well, thankfully, you're still here with us, and uh, and if you could survive that, you could. What if I'm not? What if I died there, and this has all just been a weird sort of post dream? It's very, uh, very. Uh, what is it? Untouchable? Or yeah. Unspe- yeah. Yeah. Uns- yeah. Uh, yeah. Bruce Willis movie. I, I really. My whole life is a Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> Die Hard. D- directed five? by Lynch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Maybe one of the two. I really appreciate you coming in and doing this Thanks, i think man. it was awesome. a good time. that's right Absolutely. i keep forgetting we have to handshake because we're on video now um <laughs> and uh i wish you the best of luck we'll probably meet up again and we'll do one of these in the future absolutely i'd love to awesome thanks ap podcasts are recorded at lava room recording studio in cleveland ohio a new york city quality studio at cleveland prices check out www.lavaroomrecording.com for more information on Alternative Press Magazine, go to www.altpress.com. The podcast engineer is John Walsh. Post-production assistance from Robert Tenzi. I'm Mike Shea, and this is all my fault. You can reach me directly at www.myspace.com slash Mike Shea AP. That's S-H-E-A like the stadium, AP. 